1: of you who give a shit, I'm uh, about a day late with this. I've got a really good reason though. Yesterday I took a drive up to a place called Lompoc, which is about an hour and a half north of LA. It's beautiful. Never been out there, but oh man, beautiful, rolling green hills, oak, you know, like um, uh, copses, that's the word, copses, I think of oak trees, you know, little puddles of oak trees in the in the gullies and stuff and just rolling grass hills makes you want to, you know, jump on a horse and go do, do equine things. Anyway, uh, out there, I went to Lompoc because there was a van for sale. I sort of changed my, my van plan a little bit. As you may know, if you're a follower of this epic struggle, I've been having, uh, I was going to, wait till the book got accepted, then I get my next chunk of advance money, then I was going to sink that into a brand new van, and my uncle and I were going to renovate it, and it was going to be like absolute, you know, incredible van project, Um, but I've been slowed down with the book, you know, as Joe Rogan put it, I'm too busy living life, which is part of it. Part of it, honestly, is not to, you know, guilt trip any of you, but part of it is, I've more of my time's going into the podcast. I'm I'm more interested in this. I'm having fun with this. So it's harder to find um you know, time when I can just sort of chill and work on the book. But any but I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You know, I'm I'm getting I'm recharging my batteries. But uh anyway, so instead of waiting for all that, which has been dragging on, I I definitely wanna be out on the van this in in the van this summer. So I started looking at used vans and I thought, well, maybe if I get a used one, a uh, much lower price, it's got some miles on it, whatever, but, uh, you know, I can drive it around and sort of check it out and see how I feel and see what's important. Do I really need a shower? Do I really want to, do I need the bathroom? Do I not need a bathroom? You know, what are the things is, it, does it have to be higher than six foot clearance? Cause I'm six too. So I'll have to look. Like, bend my head a little bit is that going to be a big pain in the ass over time or not so anyway these little details you know how it is you you want to like important things you, you should be able to try them before you invest in them i mean i think when you you buy a house you should be able to live in it for a week before you pay for it you know you don't know maybe the neighbors are like you know have a A rooster rescue operation going on that you don't know about because you visit the house midday. But at five o'clock in the morning, it's fucking mayhem. And you don't know till you pay for the damn thing. 30 years of your life in some freaking mortgage. Uh, Yeah, you should definitely be able to try stuff out. I mean, you know, that's what dating is, right? (sighs) Mattresses. You go to a mattress store and you like lie on it and you feel weird because everybody's, you know, everybody feels awkward in a mattress store. You can't have sex on it. You can't sleep on it. You can't drool on it. Who knows? I paid a shit ton of money for a mattress. I think it was like a thousand euros or something for some fancy ass mattress. And after a week, Cassie and I were both like this thing. No, this sucks. Fuck this. But what do you do? You don't get your money back. Anyway, what am I talking about? The van, so I decided I'll buy a used one, spend the summer, drive around do a do a sort of mini road trip or a couple road trips, and see how it goes and then and then i'll if I still want to, then I'll buy a new one and really like do it right and do everything original and you know blah blah blah. The problem of course, with that scenario is. I'm no expert in cars, so maybe I buy a van that looks good, but it's got some hidden problem that I don't know about. You know, it's sort of a classic way to get ripped off is, you know, an ignorant person buying a used car. But as, you know, the heavens aligned and uh, my buddy Oliver showed up, Oliver Thorpe of Lanks and York Automotive in uh, Chatsworth, California. If you're in L.A., make sure you check this guy out for your automotive needs. Um, Anyway, he uh, listens to the podcast and he reached out and, you know, volunteered to help me out. And I said, well, I'm thinking about going to look at this van. He said, well, hey, maybe my wife and I will come with you and we'll make a day of it. And so with another friend of mine, the four of us went up to Lompoc yesterday, had a great day. And uh, I showed up, you know, to buy this van with my own auto mechanic. Fucking cool. How cool is that? It's better than a bodyguard. So anyway uh he looked at the van uh, confirmed that it was in good shape uh that it's a decent price he actually he actually helped me negotiate with the guy too which was amazing cuz i'm kind of a shitty negotiator for someone who spent as much time in mexico and morocco and other countries india where negotiation is sort of expected uh i'm not that good at it in america i can do it when i'm a traveler for some reason in my own culture, it feels weird. But anyway, uh, I bought a van yesterday. That's the long and the short of it. So, hey, thank you to all of you who contributed toward that. A bunch of people sent some money specifically for the van project. So, hey, it came to fruition. Uh, I'll be posting on Instagram once I, I get it cleaned and insured and (laughs) whatever registered and all the paperwork shit you got to do and then i'll take it somewhere pretty and take pictures of it anyway so it's a sprinter van it's a 2006 diesel 2500 model it's long it's a big big van it's not i was thinking of getting sort of a normal size van this is a big one um and it still gets between 18 and 23 miles per gallon. So it's it's very efficient. It's great. Um, anyway, so that's why this is coming out a day late. Uh, and uh, this is a very good episode, though. It's Hunter Matz. I, I spoke with him uh, maybe a month ago now. He came up to the house and where I'm staying in Topanga, and we chatted here, had a really nice time. Uh, super interesting guy. He's lived all over the world. Very well-read uh, you'll hear he and I have a lot of the same interest. He knows a lot about evolutionary theory and uh, we talk about linguistics. He speaks several languages, I believe. I don't remember which they are, but uh, he's a very international guy. Um, he's a co-host of the Brian Callen uh, podcast. So if you are a fan of Brian and uh, his work, you probably come across Hunter already. I know Brian's been on Rogan's show a bunch of times. I've never, I've never met Brian. I've seen him... Perform, I believe. I think he was in a show uh, that I went to uh, that Joe and Duncan and Ari Shaffir uh, did together with Brian and and uh, that one other guy, the Golden Palomino. I forget his name, but he's another uh, buddy of Joe's. Sort of, Joe has a posse, you know, of young comics that he likes to travel with and support. And uh, I think Brian's part of that group. Anyway, uh, I saw them play at or play. I saw them perform at uh, the Ice House in Pasadena, which is a great place to see comedy. If you're ever in the area or if you live out there, it's supposedly the longest running. I mean, it's it's the like first comedy club in America that's been open since it, you know, since it started. Uh, I don't remember how long, but Joe talked about that. At some point. Anyway, great place to see comedy. I think I saw Brian out there. So this this episode is with Hunter Matz. Very cool guy. Um, and uh, let's see what else. Stuff I want to... Oh, uh, family. Family matters. Colin Cravero. Friend of the podcast. Uh, I don't remember which episode he was on. Uh, but you can Google it. It was fantastic. He drove down to Portland from... Victoria BC where he was living or he still lives drove all the way down to Portland to be on the podcast brought his guitars we sat in a park talked for a couple hours uh, interspersed with him playing it was just I, I remember it like it was yesterday it was a beautiful day uh, just wonderful to sit there out in the park and listen to him play these beautiful songs anyway he is having a lot of interesting shit going on in his life. For example, on March 7th, he had a son. Uh, so congratulations to Colin and Colin's girl, whose name I don't know, and it's not in his email, but you know, she did most of the work. His son's name is Riot Sage Cravero. Riot Sage. <laughs> that is that is great wow riot that's a cool name huh that's a name like some woman or man or or maybe both is gonna are gonna have tattooed on their bodies one of these days that's gonna just say riot and no one's gonna know quite why except riot sage corvero he'll know why so anyway uh that's uh one of the things that has happened in colin's life the other thing that's happened in his life recently is he's got a new album that just dropped the record is called godless and you can hear it at uh you can stream it you can buy it you can you can listen to it so many times that it gets stuck in your head and you can't sleep at night and it's called godless the band is man-made lake and they've got a One of those doohickeys at uh, Bandcamp. So just go to manmadelake.bandcamp.com. Two dots. That's it. That's all it takes. Godless. Uh, That's it. I'm going to play you out with a song from that record called Spider Bite. It features Colin's beautiful laid back voice and uh, some very interesting lyrics as well. One last little story I wanted to tell. Uh, Somebody sent me an email this week. I was actually out in... Um, I was back out in the desert again. I went out to uh, Salton Sea uh, and um, to Tal's place, Tal Ruspoli. He's been on the podcast a couple times. Italian Prince. Uh, check those episodes out. He's a really interesting cat. Uh, so interesting. I, You know, I don't think he knows how interesting he is because if he did, he'd be kind of a dick. You know what I mean? Like people who know they're cool aren't cool anymore. And Tao is so fucking cool, and he just he's just having fun in life and doesn't seem to be aware of how it looks from outside. But he's got this piece of property out there near Joshua Tree, a little house, and uh airstreams and uh this cool BMW camper. He's into trailers. So this guy is an Italian prince, an actual prince, like with castles and shit, and in his family from the thirteen hundreds or something like that. Uh and he lives in the desert near Joshua Tree and has an obsession with trailers, which are sort of, you know, the symbol of low class America, <laughs> you know, trailer trash and all that. So, uh, and it's cool. But anyway, so I was out there driving around the desert, and I got an email uh, from a guy who said, "I'm uh, see if I I can't remember the guy's name, but he was driving from Ohio to I think North Carolina or something every couple of weeks." and uh, i guess for work or a family thing or something but um he stopped got off the highway in west virginia in some little town to get some gas and get some food whatever and he walked into a restaurant and there was a table of uh kind of like uh, cops uh, you know muscles and what do you say flat tops flat top haircuts so very straight kind of scary looking dude sitting there having lunch And as the guy walks by, one of the cops looks up from the table and says, nice shirt. And the guy who sent me the email looks down and he's wearing a tangentially speaking shirt. And he says to the cop, do you listen? And The guy says, yeah, all the time. (sighs) That's so cool. That's so cool. Some cop in rural West, rural West Virginia. There's no urban West Virginia. Some cop in West Virginia listens to tangentially speaking. So, hey, man. If this is you, if you're out there and you're hearing me talking about you sitting at a table in a little town in West Virginia and some guy walked in with a shirt and you recognized it, well, hey, how are you? Good for you. You're a cool cop. We need more of those. Let someone go today (laughs) in my honor, please. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we definitely need more cool cops. We need them more than ever right now because... It feels like things are getting to a place where they're going to be asked to do things that uh, they're not going to want to do, most of them. Uh, I know that probably happens a lot as a cop, but it feels like it's, it's getting to a weird place in America. So we'll see. Maybe, maybe there will be a massive civil unrest and people will just uh, say, you know what, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and it's already happening in sanctuary cities They're, they're telling the federal government no our cops aren't going to be involved in your political thing rounding up immigrants who've been living here for 20 years and haven't committed any crimes haven't done anything wrong no 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 we're not going to be involved in that so it's already happening we'll see i think this whole russia connection is just going to bring the whole administration down now it seems that pence definitely knew what was going on that whole thing about flynn lying to pence which never made any sense anyway that's fallen apart so it seems to me this whole administration is about to fall apart and we're going to end up with president Ryan, Jesus, this is not the way it was supposed to happen. Anyway, enough about me. Don't get me going about politics. Uh, this is God. This is from the album Godless. The song is Spider Bite. The band is Man Made Lake. And the episode is Hunter Mats. Hope you enjoy all of those things. And I hope everything is going fantastic for you. And if it isn't, it's going to get better soon. Catch you next week.
0: Well, I'll be as If anybody needs me now, yeah Ask, don't wait And I'm tired I don't have my head Just been bitten by a spider And my arms turn red I don't want to talk I don't want to feel Write down your questions now And I will call you later I just want to go to sleep the back tonight, yeah. We'll see who wins. And they're tired, they don't got the heads. They've just been bitten by a spider, and their arms turn red. I don't wanna talk, I don't wanna feel. Write down your questions now, and I will call you later. I just wanna go to sleep. I don't wanna talk any your questions now and I'll call you later. I just want to go to sleep. Take a See if anybody needs me now Yeah, ask, don't wait And I'm tired I don't have my head Just been bitten by a spider And my arms turn red I don't want to talk I don't want to feel Write down your questions now And I will call you later I just want to go to sleep I don't want to talk I don't want to feel Write down your questions now And I will call you later I just want to go to sleep I don't want to talk I don't want to feel Write down your questions now And I will call you later I just want to go to sleep Take Your questions now and I will call you later. I just wanna go to sleep.
1: Alright. Alright. We're live. Or wow. We're not really live. <laughs> I mean, as far as we're concerned, it it's live. live. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the fact that no one's hearing this as we speak makes it. Kind of not live. It's, but we
2: could also just lie to people and just say that, you know,
1: this is live. Yeah, send us your questions. Send us your questions and your questions or we're
2: going to totally ignore you. <laughs> sorry,
1: because we're in a different dimension. Yeah. With
2: those interdimensional aliens. <laughs> it's like
1: that. It's like um, bottled draft beer. What the <laughs> fuck does that mean? Like Miller Genuine draft yeah. in a bottle mm-hmm. or can. <laughs> D- doesn't that co- doesn't that not make Cancel sense? Cancel out? Yeah. yeah. Or, I thought you know, draft man, It came from a keg, right? Or
2: made with uh, real artificial f- flavors or natural artificial flavors.
1: Natural yeah. artificial flavoring. Yeah. 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 Genuine leatherette. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't understand. Is there... There should be some sort of policing of language in the sense that you shouldn't be able to call, for example, um, my mother made... These mushrooms stuffed with crab meat. Mm -hmm. And I ate one, and she took a lot of time doing it. Yeah. And I ate one, and it was like the mushroom part was great, the crab meat was complete bullshit. Right. That's not crab meat. Right. It was some shit she bought at Costco. Yeah. That's like white fish hot dogs yeah. painted orange. Yeah. And they call it crab meat. Right. It's not crab meat. No. It's never been anywhere near a fucking crab. <laughs> a crab would even eat that. That's it how also bad it is. It doesn't taste like crab. It doesn't taste. The texture's not. No. So how is it legal to call that crab meat?
2: <laughs> or how is it legal to call tofurkey tofurkey? Well,
1: right. but so Furky doesn't exist in nature, so no, but, so no one's expecting it to be a, a flying yeah. to Furky, but, there's, but it, crabs exist. The, the crab's a thing.
2: There's, there's just a, a lot of false advertising. I mean, it's what every vegan does, which is to try and convince you that the thing that is not the thing tastes just like the thing, right? And yeah. it's like, you know, vegan Fucking bacon, soy soyrizo, all of that stuff. Like, why not just eat meat?
1: <laughs> yeah. Or just eat things that aren't pretending to be something else. Yeah, like
2: a portobello mushroom is delicious. Right. Like, why have to pretend that a portobello mushroom is the same as a beef burger?
1: Right. That's where I am with the vegan thing. I have a friend who's a vegan, and we used to go to restaurants and stuff. And I remember one time she got a, a burger... I ordered a burger because she recommended it, and it was this crumbly mass of yeah. lentils. And it's yeah. like, why don't you just... Get, like I, I like lentils, <laughs> yeah, exactly, but not cooked like this, right. not pretending to be a fucking burger. <laughs> anyway, it's early in the morning. This is the earliest I've ever recorded a podcast. Really? Is,
2: that, is that a good thing or a bad thing, or do we not know yet? We'll
1: see. We'll see. <laughs> I'm on my third cup of coffee, so well, that's I'm trying a good to sign. compensate yeah. for it. So you're Hunter Mass., Mots. 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 Mots, like the applesauce Mots, the, uh, you're Dutch, your father's Dutch Yeah, my dad's Dutch That yeah. explains the two A's yep. next to each other yep. And I got this strange text from you yesterday I mean, I don't really know how it is that we are doing this Because <laughs> it's like all this First of all, you reached out to me on Twitter uh-huh. From the Brian Callen Show Twitter account yep. So I thought you're Brian Callen No, I'm not Brian Callen Uh, and I'm like, and oh, Brian Callen wants to have me on a podcast. Okay, cool. He's a friend of Rogan's. That's cool. Okay. And then you're like, no, Brian's too famous to talk to you. I'm some other guy. I'm like, who's this other guy pretending to be Brian? What the fuck's going on? And then it turns out that I was out, uh, for dinner with a guy who I had, he was listens to my podcast, and he was in town, and we got together, and he's a really cool guy, and was, so we were hanging out, and then he was like, by the way, have you ever heard of Hunter Motts?" And I was like, I think that's the guy <laughs> who is pretending to be Brian Kell. <laughs> he's like, oh, that guy's really smart. You should check him out. He's, he's whatever. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's a weird convergence, because I was just sort of like, eh, I don't yeah, know yeah, what yeah. this is. And then, and then what happened? Oh, and then I saw you on Rogan recently. Mm-hmm. And I like the in the first hour, you talked about like 15 books that I know. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this guy's interests intersect with mine a lot. Yep. And then yesterday I get an email or a text from you saying, I didn't know you were that Chris Ryan yeah. <laughs> who wrote Sex at Dawn. I'm like, well, who the fuck did you think I was then? Because <laughs> that's the only Chris Ryan that I would be. Uh, that I would be. Or, right, or did you think I was Doctor Who or somebody?
2: No, no, no. I because I get you know all the time. I'm sure you do the same thing with podcasting. You get people who reach out to you and they're like, dude, you have to like talk to this dude. You have to talk to this dude, uh, or you have to read this <clears throat> book, or you have to read this book. Right. And in general, I tend to think in terms of book titles, not in terms of authors. Right. So you know, I've been hearing about Sex at Dawn for a long, long time. And it's one of those books that I keep on meaning to read, keep on meaning yeah. to read. Came out in the 70s. Yeah, it came out in the yeah. 70s. And so, uh, you know, that's the that was the point, is, is that... For me, it was just realizing, like, you know, in terms of preparing for this, I wasn't oh. sure if you were just some sort of general podcaster. Oh, and then I was right. like, what have you done? I started listening to your Rogan appearance, your most recent one. And then I was like, oh, Sex at Dawn, Chris Ryan. Oh, and then I finally okay. was like, oh, shit, let's, let's finally read Sex at Dawn.
1: I thought you thought I was a different Chris Ryan. No. And there, would,
2: there must be other Chris Ryans.
1: There are. I have a Google Alert set to it. And... Uh, And, yeah, a lot of Christopher Ryans get arrested uh, for for real bullshit. There are a lot of, like, redneck Christopher Ryans, apparently. Um, But, no, the guy, there's a guy in Doctor Who, I think. Uh Uh-huh. Some actor. Yeah. uh, uh, Christopher Ryan there. And then there are some other, oh, there's a Chris Ryan who writes, like, military soldier bestseller kind of you know like uh tom clancy kind of yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, are you happy with the chris ryan that you are would you rather be some other chris ryan of those three options i guess i'm all right with the one i am i I think it's the best chris ryan i think as the i mean the military they both make more money than me that's that's for sure that's true uh I think they're both older than me, though, so I've, that's got, a I've big, got a few extra yeah. years on them if I play my cards right. <laughs> but also, it's you know, I think that's the thing, too, is, is you're the most
2: uh, interesting, Chris Ryan, certainly. From my perspective. From my perspective, too.
1: Well, here I mean, we yeah, are. Here if you want are.
2: to talk to Dr. Who guy, what's he going to tell you? Yeah. Right? What's Tom Plancy, Chris Ryan, going to tell you? He's
1: going to talk to you about caliber and
3: ball- <laughs>
1: <Exactly>. ballistics. <laughs> ballistics. <laughs> so boring. I knew this guy I know last guy I met this dude cool guy and I still remember his truck he had this Toyota pickup truck and he was sleeping in the back he had it all really set up nicely with little Mm -hmm. cabinets and it was a a slick rig he had there and uh, I remember one day we got to know each other hanging out and he was telling me about his dad and his dad Mm -hmm. uh, was a CIA agent Mm -hmm. and he was trying to explain to me how weird his relationship with his dad was and he he just got frustrated trying to like you know help me picture it. He said, hold on, I'll just I'll read you his this letter I got from him the other day. And he pulls out this letter and he starts reading it. And it starts off with like a typical letter from dad. Yeah. You know, your mom's fine, she's you know, built she's got a new <laughs> bird feeder in the back, and yeah, you know, you know, your cousins getting married in April and you know whatever. And then it seamlessly shifts into, by the way, for Uh, person to person inner city uh, maneuvers you want a Walter PPK because the recoil is very minimal and so your aiming won't be affected by it and your Aunt Mary has uh, irritable bowel syndrome and you know if you're in a knife fight you always want to hold the blade down not up although most people will hold the blade up but it's like what the fuck? <laughs> Your dad is weird. Yeah. Man. He
2: doesn't know how to compartmentalize. He, you <laughs> exactly. know, he brings his work home. <laughs> <laughs> he does. He
1: um, does. That's amazing. Yeah, That's that was, amazing. Why am I, Why are we talking about that? Um, uh, oh, ballistics. Yeah, ballistics. Yeah, ballistics. So
2: anyway, I'm glad that you're the Chris Ryan that you are. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That's the nicest thing. You're my favorite thing. Chris Ryan.
1: That's the nicest thing anyone said to me <laughs> today. So, But it is, also, it's early. <laughs> it is also 1030. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay, you're Hunter Matz, and you are, uh, let's see, here's what I learned about you from the Joe Rogan show. You're interested okay. in evolution. Yep. You've got an issue with... Uh, Richard Dawkins that sort of made Joe uncomfortable
2: (laughs) yes and also very much it's funny because you picked up the same quote in Sex at Dawn uh, that I think is the most important in in Dawkins Selfish Gene which is about like you know human nature is selfish if you want altruism you better teach it because it's not in there right so I think the funny thing is is that we've been on very sort of parallel journeys where there is this scientific consensus Um, which is, you know, a lot of it comes
1: down to cultural prejudices rather than responsiveness to evidence. Exactly. That's what my current book's about. Yep. Um, civilized to death. And I get into this a lot more, this Mm -hmm. particular issue. I get into it a lot more than I did in sex at dawn. Yep. Um, I call it the neo Hobbesian worldview. Yep. Um, this idea that you know that uh, nature is solitary poor nasty brutish and short that mm-hmm. life in nature was and, and and similarly that that is outer nature is red in tooth and claw and human nature a reflection mm-hmm. of outer nature is also not to be trusted that right. we are horrible brutish that's right uh, creatures that will rip each other to shreds if we don't have this authority structure protecting us from right. ourselves yeah, it's politics. It's not science. Well, and crucially I think what, you know, what I think is so
2: interesting <clears throat> is is that all the early enlightenment figures were obsessed with the state of nature, yeah. but had no knowledge of it. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, well,
2: or it, very limited knowledge of it. I mean, people yeah. like Hobbes and Rousseau right. aren't going around and spending time with hunter gatherers and that seeing how they exactly yeah, how sure. they live. So yeah. what they're doing is is that as you you know as you say in Sex at Dawn, they're trying to imagine what the state of nature might be. Yeah. You know, Darwin had really good data on you know how are finches, how are you know iguanas, how are turtles, yeah. how are barnacles. But had you know, didn't have very good data on looking at a lot of hunter-gatherer societies and seeing right. what that pre-agricultural behavior was like. Yeah, and That's you know, the truth. Now, now, we do, and now there are people who, both within academia and outside academia, who are trying to correct that. People like David Sloan Wilson, uh, John Hight. Joe Henrik,
1: uh, yeah. obviously yourself. Joe Henrik. Yeah, I love Joe Henrik. Do you, I've never met Joe, but I have a funny relationship with him <laughs> um, because he and I were hired as expert witnesses mm-hmm. on opposing sides of a court case. Uh-huh. And so I wrote this uh, paper uh, basically in response to what he had submitted. Yeah. Um, so I had this sort of oppositional, uh, yep. you know, situation with him. And then in the end, I never testified and mm-hmm. I don't know if they use my, my paper or not. Mm-hmm. But so I sort of, when I think of Joe Henrik, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to get you, Joe. And I was sort of girding my loins again <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to deal with him. He's at UBC, I think. He's now at Harvard. Oh, is he? He moved. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. He did the thing, he, the thing I love, I mean, he's done a lot of work that's really interesting, but His strange... The uh, the weirds? uh, The weird, weird, not strange. Yeah, weird. Yeah, no, strange is what I'm into. That's, that's the theory of sex at well, the, the weird Humans love strange. Yeah,
2: and the, the weirds don't get a lot
1: of strange. <laughs> that's what makes them so weird. Um, so, yeah, explain what weird, weird so, is. So,
2: yeah, weird is an acronym <clears throat> for Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And essentially, it's the culture of college kids and yeah. college professors. Yeah. And his point is, is that they're the weirdest society that has ever lived, um, precisely because they don't understand relationships. They think of everything as sort of disconnected, there's no context. You know, I think part of what happened in this election in particular is the fact that the liberals are so weird that they don't understand group identity. They don't understand group mm. reputation. And so what ends up happening is you have these social justice warriors who go and, you know, do this stupid stuff with pronouns or whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. You have Trigglypuff and they don't understand that humans have to stereotype and they have to form stereotypes about groups, but that they form the stereotype around the most emotionally provocative individuals. Mm. So, for example, my mother is weird, right? She's a hippie, um, and, you know, I talk to her about these social justice warriors, and she's like, whatever, they're dumb college kids. She massively downplays the importance of them. Meanwhile, her, her brother, my Uncle Bill, who watches nothing but Fox News and lives in Kansas, is watching these people nonstop. And he's thinking that this is representative of all college-educated people, all college kids, all college professors. Right. And he doesn't understand that they are essentially the ISIS of social justice. Mm. They are the most <laughs> radicalized, fundamental... They're the ISIS
1: on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the weird thing also, my understanding of it, is that it applies to the distortions baked into uh, most... Uh, sort of social psychology because those are the subjects of all these surveys that are being done, right?
2: Well, and I think it's not, you know, in terms of David Sloan Wilson stuff and group selection, it's not a surprise that people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris have difficulty understanding group selection, whether they have difficulty understanding tribe because they don't
1: understand that they're part of a tribe. Do you you think they have difficulty with it or do you think it's a political resistance I think it's
2: part of it I mean I think at this point they've sort of you know so much of what happens in academia is is that you know you stake your reputation around a particular right. ideology or a particular thought and then you've backed yourself into a corner right and now you have to defend this stupid ideology until death which is funny because that's
1: so much a group uh, identity of, you course. Know, in-group, out-group of behavior. course yeah academia is the most tribal area I know of yep. actually yeah
2: and I mean, you know, it's I think what's interesting in particular about science is that, you know, they all the, the degree to which there's lip service paid to these ideas of, oh, science is a collective project. Mm. It's not about individual mm. ego. You know, it's really just about advancing collective human knowledge. Right.
1: The good and, idea wins out.
2: Yeah, that's over right. the bad blah, blah, idea. Blah. And then there's the practical reality of what actually happens in academia, which is about as far divorced from yeah. the principles as you
1: can get. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are examples there. Oh that's
2: exciting. That's my phone. <laughs> is that our
0: caller? <laughs> it's <laughs> it's um, the other Chris Ryan. <laughs> what like, are you doing? You haven't
2: demanding? read any of my novels, have you? <laughs> They're amazing. I'm
1: coming to you with a bazooka. <laughs> yeah, for people who can't hear that, my, my phone just went off. And my ringer is Hey 19 by Steely Dan. <laughs> yeah. It's my ringtone. Good choice. Not that I'm a pedophile or anything. I just really like that song. Um. Uh. What the hell are we talking? Oh, oh in, yeah. in group, out group. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. I mean, what I what I find, and I talked about this in Sex at Dawn, but I get into it much more in this this next book, of course, is that politics um it has sort of uh what's the word infiltrated mm-hmm. science so much, and it's obvious when you yep. start seeing it in that way, and it and it's always been that way. Yep. You know, I mean, in Sex at Dawn, I talk about drapedomania, the disease uh-huh. of you know, of runaway, slaves. runaway slaves. Like, you know, they must be sick. They don't want, they're not happy with their slavery. Yeah. We do that all the time, but, but we always seem to think that we're not doing it anymore. Yep. You know, we used to do it, but we're not doing it now. Yep. Now it's science. And it's like, what are you talking about? Look right. at, look at the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. you know, look at, and I think in, in the stuff that you and I are interested in, It's largely, you know, this what you were saying about how uh, 19th century science, (laughs) excuse me, had very little understanding of of hunter-gatherer, actual Mm hunter-gatherer life. Um, What's happened in the 20th and and now 21st century, I think, is that the struggle between communism and capitalism Mm -hmm. has totally um, sort of distorted this discussion yep. because hunter-gatherers are essentially communists. Right. They, it's egalitarian right. to each according to his needs, from each according to his ability. That's the way our ancestors evolved. Right, And we can't, people, you know, that's why I said it's kind of political. Oh, you know, this, 100%. You know, group selection becomes a political argument because people don't want to... It's too much like communism, right. you know, and we grew up saying that's evil, Pe- right. you know, that's not the way. And and because scale isn't understood, like, yes. yeah, when on large scale, communism doesn't work. I just that's ranted right. about this on my last podcast. But if it's 150 people living together, it's the only thing that works.
2: 100%. And I think the, the crucial thing, I mean, firstly, yeah human nature doesn't change politics creeps in as soon as there's power of course there's going to be factionalism right. and you know petty squabbles and yeah. all of that and, and and but i think the the key thing is that um there there's a great book a billion wicked thoughts yeah yeah mm-hmm. and um you based know based on
1: internet uh, yeah based or... on
2: internet porn searches they yeah. sort of look and analyze human sexuality and look for patterns and one of the points they make in there is, is that physics doesn't really get politicized mm. like nobody really cares whether you know string theory or some other you know basic grand unified theory wins out nobody gets super upset about you know is light a wave or a particle right you don't right. get you know vicious but it's It's anything to do with human behavior that then it starts to get really political and people start to get really interested and start to, you know, not let the facts win out and not try and just find the most realistic model possible.
1: It's incredible. Not only the distortion in the science, but then the next step, how it gets presented in media. Yep. And then how it gets implemented in public policy. Right. And,
2: you know, because my background, I think what's interesting, it's always interesting talking to science writers Because they have this, we have this very particular experience where we range across a lot of different science. Hmm. And so we see different patterns than somebody who's mired in a very tiny field would see, or the patterns that the general public sees, not really engaging in it. We really see that politicization, we see the patterns, we see the problems. And I really came at this, I started from education. Where, you know, I had these students who were saying things like, I didn't get the math gene, don't have a natural ear for languages, all that crazy stuff, and started working through all the science. And you come to find out that there's decades and decades worth of practical, useful science that have just sort of piled up and haven't been applied, haven't been translated into a form that anyone can use. And then on top of that, there are a lot of shit science that's allowed to proliferate. Right. Because nobody, at a certain point, these these people have established... Like, I mean, I think the best example is Howard Gardner and his multiple intelligences theory, Mm. which is, you know, it's a very appealing narrative, like, oh, we're all intelligent in our own special little ways, and there's Mm. spiritual intelligence and musical intelligence and sports intelligence and whatever else. And so it was this very, you know, 80s-friendly, me-generation theory and you know gardner is powerful he's at harvard and doesn't matter that none of his research is actually supported by evidence it it, nobody wants to put him out of business
1: nobody wants to say your ideas don't work they don't fit the data well but they do work in the sense that they're useful descriptive tools They can be useful descriptive. Right, you could say so and so has a lot of emotional intelligence, but you know can't fucking balance her checkbook. Well, but the that does that. There are people like that. Well, there
2: are people like that, but then the crucial thing is: is that a permanent state? So you have emotional intelligence. That's great. You have that competence. Can we also develop this checkbook ability? And Mm. a lot of what it comes down to is that fixed versus growth
1: mindset. Uh, Yeah, you're right. Because we get we get trapped in the metaphor. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, uh, you know, it's also where did the IQ test start? So when Alfred Binet came up with the IQ test, the point of it was to measure where people were as a way to target uh-huh. how they could improve. Not a, not a steady state. Nope. Uh-huh. And then Lewis Terman and the eugenicists hijacked the IQ test and made it this permanent thing. And Alfred Binet in 1909 said, you know, that there's this, this pessimistic tendency is developed in terms of what the IQ test is. And we have uh-huh. to fight that. But, you know, and if you talk to Carol Dweck, who does all the growth and fixed mindset stuff, she'll tell you that her whole career is basically devoted to undoing the damage of Lewis Terman. Wow. Um, but this is, I mean, this is now a century old. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard it's,
1: to get back in there and change it. That's it's right. Structural, you and know? to
2: change the culture. Because part of the problem is, is that an idea like, you know, oh, Math Gene, right? Math Gene is like such an easy media friendly idea it's so simple and on the other hand getting in there and being like well it's practice and then they're like okay sure practice right and then you got to break down practice and you got to look at the different parts you have to embrace your mistakes you have to analyze them you have to turn all these rules into things that are accessible recipes and very actionable right you You have to have
1: enough self-confidence not to get discouraged oh i didn't get the self-confidence gene yeah
2: exactly (laughs) and this is the conversation that i had with parents and students for ages and ages and ages in la and then on top of it you have some educational psychologist who has a phd and they're saying you know they just sort of sit around like educational psychologists a lot of them are they're like phone psychics they just sit around and they just like invent new disabilities like left and right so dysgraphia is having shitty handwriting Right, and it's like okay, you have shitty handwriting. You know, in the old days, they used to call that penmanship, and then you yeah. have to work at that and you have to practice that. I have dysgraphia, and I probably could fix it, but like I use a laptop all day, yeah. and so I'm not concerned with my shitty handwriting. And even the grammar,
1: I have dysgraphia. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I work. I'm interested in addiction a lot, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it reminds me of this debate in addiction: is addiction a disease or mm-hmm. is addiction a behavioral issue? Yep. You know. Uh, Stanton Peel is is you know arguing against the disease model, and I think he and, and many other people, of course. But uh, you know the disease model. It it I have addiction. Yep. I'm an addict. Yep. I'll always be an addict. And mm-hmm. so once you accept that language, it changes the way you would approach the issue. One hundred percent. Yeah. And,
2: and crucially again, what you find is, and this is the frustration, is, is that when you start to go into adjacent scientific fields, you find out that the problem that you're talking about is well understood. They call it the fundamental attribution error, right. which is that humans have this tendency to say, oh you're just this kind of person, and not see the context around it. Which
1: gets back to the stereotyping we were that's talking right. about earlier. Yeah. And then,
2: you know, that's a particularly acute problem in atomistic cultures, like the western cultures where right. you see everyone as an individual, and you don't think about relationship
1: or context factors Not only every person as an individual, but aspects of that person exactly. as separatable You know, it's the same thing we do with our medicine. You know, yep. Andrew Weil talks about 100%. this. You take you take the coca plant, the coca mm-hmm. leaf that's got hundreds of compounds that interact, and you isolate yep. one molecule. You know, and then you get a problem. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And in in general, I mean, you know,
2: so so many of the problems of the culture of the West are the culture of the west right (laughs) and you know and if you want to fix these problems you have to change the culture right um and in reality what 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 you find when you look at these different opposing mindsets you find that they're complementary right so you know atomism and holism you know if you want to understand a forest you just sit there at a thousand yards and you know stare at the forest no you don't you go you understand the trees you understand the trees and then you back out it's like painting a painting you go do the detail work you back. Back out and you see how the thing looks then you go back in and you do more detail work and so it should be this dance back and forth in the same way as a painting that's how science should work but in fe- practice the the atomistic biases of science are baked in and only getting worse it's just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and people think that that often assume that that's getting better right because we're getting more detailed. right but the problem is is that as you get more and more and more detailed you're losing more and more context and so your thinking can become more reductionist it can become worse and the analogy that i use i think the best analogy is the story of the blind men and the elephant right um where you know if you look at what's happened with economics Economics in 1776. You know when Adam Smith writes *The Wealth of Nations*. Adam Smith wrote two books. This is what people always forget. And one of the books is about economics, *The Wealth of Nations*, and the other book is about moral psychology. It's mm. the theory of moral sentiments. Yeah. This is an amazing book. Yeah. And what happened is is that increasingly people were like, the money part. That's what's interesting. Right. And so they you know economics dials more and more in on the *Wealth of Nations* forgets about the theory of moral sentiments, and then you end up with the ridiculous place that economics reached where you have rational agent theory. Because you can't make sense of economics without having some sort of theory of how humans work. But then, of course, you know, economists start to realize that that's ridiculous. People like Richard Thaler and Richard Thaler starts to pull out all of the work of Kahneman and Tversky and they start to essentially work back. And now you can read books like How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life by Russ Roberts, where he says, you know, uh, when it's you know, he says, I'm a professional economist. And for years and years I've been studying this, but I'd never read Adam Smith's other book. And Mm. then I did. And it changed my life. And what you realize is that all this behavioral economics is very Smithian territory. So what they've done is they've reinvented the wheel. They're all the way back at 1776... And, you know, is it better? Is it more detailed? Yes. But a large part of the opportunity, I think, is that the scientific project began a long time ago. They didn't know what they were doing. They started with certain assumptions about human intelligence, like the fact that we're good at reason. Mm. turns out we're terrible at it. Um, And the opportunity now is to essentially have a scientific reformation where you restart the process,
1: incorporating everything we've learned in the last uh, few hundred years. So do you think science can exist outside of culture? Is science something that isn't based on an atomistic Western view oh, of yeah, the world? Oh, yeah, totally.
2: I think, I think these are I, I, so much of this goes back to the trauma of agriculture that you talk about in the dawn of sex, right? Sex at dawn, right? So there's, if you, there, Jared Diamond has this great, um, this, you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've read The World Until Yesterday. Mm. Yeah. So there's this great part in there that I found so fascinating about constructive paranoia where, you know, when hunter-gatherers go outside of the village, they suddenly become massively paranoid. They're worried about trees falling on them. They're listening for strange sounds in the forest. You know, they're hyper-alive to threats, but it's not a problem for them. They're using it in a functional way, so it's not the anxiety or the paranoia that, you know, moderns struggle with. And I think what's interesting is is that when you start uh, thinking about that, you start to realize that each of these perspectives has a function. And that just as we didn't have any particular problems before agriculture switching between these different mindsets... um, and, you know, zebras don't get ulcers, Mm. they're in the state of nature, these things were probably used fairly effortlessly. But then you have the experience of agriculture, and suddenly you find that there are these massive cultural biases. So the East massively favors holism, and the West massively favors atomism. And there are problems to each cultural bias. So I think the opportunity now, and part of what Brian and I have been doing with what we call mixed mental arts, is to start to deliberately correct our own cultural biases, so that we understand atomism and holism and optimism and pessimism and growth and fixed as tools and then we're discerning about when to use them Um, and you come to find that if you look back across history people have understood that it's all baked you know Carol Dweck takes credit for the growth and the fixed mindset but it's in the serenity prayer God grant me the strength to change the things Mm -hmm. that I can change the courage to accept the things that I can't and the wisdom to know the difference and that's the crucial thing about wisdom, is wisdom is about knowing when to use each tool. Right. And so I think that's the point, is, is that the scientific establishment as it stands today is not very wise. It has these these baked-in cultural biases that it blindly uses without even realizing it. And as you say in Sex at Dawn, and if you talk to Mark Schatzker, who wrote The Dorito Effect and is focused on flavor, or Kathy O'Neill, who wrote Weapons of Math Destruction and is focused on data science, uh, or a guy named Tony Molina I know who works on systemic health, you're going to find the same thing, which is that the uh, the scientific establishment often doesn't know how to distinguish the prejudices of the culture of the establishment from actually being evidence-based. Right.
1: Yeah. God, that's the truth. Yeah. It's yeah, it, and we were talking earlier about the stages of disinformation. You've got mm-hmm. the research itself, which. You know, even at that level, Mm -hmm. what people choose to investigate is predetermined by the department they're in and what their advisor Mm -hmm. has done in the past. And whether, you know, if you're going to do research as a graduate student, that's going to make your advisor's uh, career meaningless. Yep. That might be a bad move. Yep. So that right there stops a certain sort of revolutionary mm-hmm. uh, impulse, which yep. we assume is what science is all about. In fact, it's squelched at the, at the birth. It's That's strangled right. in the cradle, right? Then, okay, so now you're going to do this research that isn't, maybe isn't necessarily going to directly support your advisor's career, but more often than not will. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least it's not antagonistic toward it. Then you do that research and find nothing interesting. Yeah. That doesn't get published. Right. Or if it does, it doesn't get noticed. It's no big deal. It's whatever. It's like no, no significant results. Certainly in medicine, if, the fun- if it's funded by a pharmaceutical company and your findings don't support their drug, your research won't be published. Right. You still get a check. Yeah. Yeah. interestingly
2: and it's it's become about that bureaucracy yeah and it's about you know i mean the irony of ironies science has become about not making waves
1: yeah right which (laughs) is the opposite of what we're told science is that's right yeah
2: and so i mean that's that's why you know we've been talking about the scientific reformation idea which is that you know it's very much the same thing as what happened in the christian reformation you know the protestant reformation at the core of the catholic church was a principle the principle was love thy neighbor as thyself, humility, all that stuff, mm. and then the institution, the human institution built around it, was doing the exact opposite of that principle. Right. It had just wandered so far away from that principle that it needed to be reformed. And in the
1: same way, <clears> was, so wait, when did this happen? What, what, the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and about, all that stuff. Yeah. Okay, so Henry VIII Eighth yep. wanted to get marry more women. Well, so. exactly uh okay
2: <laughs> so there there are lots of in 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 the protestant reformation right there are lots of people who have lots of different competing agendas. Right. And not everybody is interested in the principle or in genuine faith. Some of them, I right. mean, it's, it's, you know, any human, any human revolution, right? There's a lot of right. competing factors. Some people just want to get laid, right? But see,
1: I'm challenging the yeah. notion that the Christian Reformation returned the church.
2: Oh, it didn't. I think it, yeah. Yeah, it didn't. Okay, good. And crucially, it, crucially there was a schism.
1: Right? right, And we don't want a schism. Well, it was all just more fucking politics. That's right. right. It's all just more power play. So how is a scientific
3: reformation, reformation
1: going to be different from that? Yeah. How are we going to... See, it, it it almost sounds like we're doing this uh, noble savage thing that I'm accused of all the time. Mm-hmm. Where we're saying we have to return to a science that's truly scientific. And yet, you look at it and it's like, well, when was it ever truly yeah. scientific? at least not yeah, in yeah, you yeah, know yeah. physics and chemistry right. yes but but in the social sciences when was it ever truly scientific
2: well i think listen i don't I, there's i'm not imagining some glorious past that we should return again it's not you know make science great again right <laughs> right so you know i think the thing to realize is that when science began it was very much a garage startup yeah it's a bunch of guys screwing around they've got some ideas they correspond all guys all guys right
1: although although you know the only scientist to ever win two nobel prizes Marie curie yeah yeah a woman good for her
2: yeah um and you know she was a martyr for science she uh yeah that's she, right she, she, she took one for the, <laughs> team, took one for the team in a major way yeah. same as rosalind franklin um, Who she? Yeah. rosalind franklin did all the x-ray crystallographs on. and then she died at a young age of cancer you know yeah why was that yeah. probably yeah. all that x-ray exposure yeah. um but the I mean, so you know, I mean it was very much tinkery, but now you know science is like hewlett Packard or it's a mature institution. and the I think the basic problem is is that in the early stages there was a certain there wasn't a professionalized uh, establishment and then a laity. And now there is you know this professionalized establishment, and the laity isn't really able to hold professionalized establishment accountable so it's much more about checking the power so if you want to use it you know a scientific revolution or whatever it may be but the main thing is is that science currently relies only on internal accountability and there's not a lot of external accountability Mm. and the problem is i think you need both checks on power Because what ends up happening is, you know, Max Planck has this great line that science advances one funeral at a time. Mm. And that's what tends to happen is is that you know, you get these entrenched interests, they come up with a theory, someone like Richard Dawkins, I mean, you know, Richard Dawkins was cutting edge in the nineteen seventies. But then Richard Dawkins becomes powerful and rather than changing his mind or stepping aside, he just digs his heels in more and more and more. You know, he's able to build a coalition around him, you know. He's able yeah. to, you know, <clears throat> so that I think the the what needs to happen is a return of external accountability. Where,
1: but is that possible given the level of specialization?
2: I think it is because I think the the key thing is that. There's, uh, and that's, I mean, really what we're trying to do with mixed mental arts is give people a broad framework for being able to make sense of the world. And crucially, Mm -hmm. what you, what there, I don't know if you've read The Diffusion of Innovations by Everett Rogers. Mm -mm. It's all about how ideas move and why they move. Mm. And, you know, I ran up against this problem when I was tutoring kids uh, at uh, Oaks Christian, which is a school that was set up to teach the controversy around evolution. And you have to figure out, okay, so, we're gonna be dealing with the four theories and inverted commas of the origins of life. Uh Young Earth Creationism, Earth as Metaphorical Day, Intelligent Design, and then Evolutionism. Um, evolutionism Evolutionism. Really? She's a very clever
1: rhetorical strategy. Yeah. Um and it's like, you're it's like, like the Democrat Party. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every time I hear that, I just want to say, <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Democrat party
2: <laughs> and they do this. They, they introduce evolutionism right after a unit all about how bad isms are. Oh really? Like it's just, it's the sort of stuff that, you know, I'm like, Oh, this would only work on a 13 year old. Like anybody who's an but adult. But it works really you know, well, you know, well on a 13 year old. So, shit. you know, you're trying to figure out, okay, I have no choice, but to teach the controversy. How do I teach the controversy in a way that the right ideas went out and you can't rely on intuitions of authority Mm -hmm. because their science has no authority in fact if you try and bring up scientific authority you lose their attention and they instantly dismiss what you have to say so you have to basically show them uh and that's where the diffusion of innovations comes in it has to be about practical tools that can improve their lives Mm -hmm. and that's what people adopt people adopt ideas that are useful so if you look at for example you know christian fundamentalist communities they may not adopt evolution but they definitely adopt germ theory uh, they definitely, well,
1: unless Christian, unless like they're
2: Christian scientists. scientists. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But, but people, if people feel that, that things are not in conflict with their beliefs and have practical utility, they
1: will adopt them. So you, you said something there that I wanted to pick up on. You said people will uh, adopt ideas that are useful to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of gets to the germ of what we're talking about here, because an idea that's useful to you is not necessarily an idea that's accurate. Uh,
2: That can be. Stereotypes,
1: for example. Yeah. Right. They're very useful. Right. Uh, In fact, they're essential Mm -hmm. uh, because you can't think of everyone as an individual at all times because you can't hold that much data in your head and you don't have that much information. And yet they lead us astray or... Ideas that are useful, uh, you know, a hippie smell bad, uh, mm-hmm. you know, or, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, the way, talking about the, the drugs, the you know, war on drugs, that's the one that kills me, how uh, an idea, a shitty idea... Bad science gets published on the front page of the New York Times if it says that LSD damages your chromosomes. Right. But then two years later, when it's shown that LSD does not damage your chromosomes any more than air or water does, Mm -hmm. that's not published on the front page of the New York Times or in the New York Times at all.
2: Well, but what what you have there is you have a failure between ideas to compete. So it's not a level playing field. Right. So the idea that LSD damages chromosomes is sensational and is able to get out there right. and is able to get attention the idea that it doesn't do anything worse than air or water does not right. and in the same way you know if you think about for example the arab world how much attention does isis or al-qaeda get a huge amount of attention how much attention does you know the fact that you know a, one of my family friends you know makes really great baklava get
1: gets no attention
2: right so what you're getting is, is you're there's a real eight
1: <laughs> Bak- baklava that's nice that's nice you picked a middle eastern dessert <laughs> As your uh, as my reference comparison. point, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you could have been cheesecake. No, but, no, but that but, wouldn't have done. Yeah, baklava <laughs> is very nice. So, but, so, so you don't get. Yeah. So, there's. If, yeah. if
2: you think about it, there's an asymmetry in terms of the competition. Um, so, what you find is is that there's there's not even competition. But I think in terms of what I'm talking about in terms of practical ideas is something like Thinking Fast and Slow. So understanding that there is fast thinking and that there is slow thinking is a hugely useful tool set. I mean, it it allows you to save the amount of time that you spend arguing with people Mm. because you quickly diagnose the fact that, oh, we're in fast thinking. Nothing productive is happening here. Let's get back to slow thinking. And that idea of diagnosis, which is what heuristics or rules of thumb are really about, I think is so much of what uh, practical science comes down to. Right. My grandfather was a doctor and, you know, all of that family for, you know, generations and generations were doctors. On the Dutch side? On the Dutch side. Mm. And what my grandfather said is, he said, you know, uh, the, you know, after all these centuries of being doctors, it all basically comes down to two things. One, if in doubt, leave it alone. The body is much better at healing things in general than mm. we are. Mm-hmm. And then two the reason what makes a great doctor is diagnosis. Anybody can lance a boil or write a prescription. It's the ability to sort through all the complexity of what's going on and figure out what the issue is. Mm -hmm. And so when I started tutoring, that was a lot of of what I thought about, is is that, you know, the reality is looking up words or getting the kid to do their homework. I mean, these things are pretty boring. Yeah. Uh, The actually interesting thing is to figure out what is the root issue, be able to diagnose that and then to be able to come up with a prescription. So things like thinking fast and slow atomism and holism optimism and pessimism uh dunbar number mm-hmm. um you know all of these sorts of things these are very simple like for example in sex at dawn i love the whole Flintstonization thing mm, right these dang. are very simple mental tools that you can use again and again and again yeah. and the key thing is is that like any tool is Is a hammer the answer to everything? Of course not.
1: Right, we become addicted to our
3: tools. That's right. Yeah,
2: and it's being it's being comfortable with the fact that you have this toolkit, and then you know when to pick one up, what to use it for, what not to use it for. Yeah, and. A lot of the problem that we have now is is that, you know, we are so, in terms of our society because of the internet and because of, you know, the level of globalization, we are so far beyond the Dunbar number now. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the amounts of, you know, the number of cultures that we're being expected to interact with, the number of kinds of human behavior, and we need to evolve a better toolkit to enable people to be able to quickly make sense of these things because a large part of why 2016 was so traumatic for so many people is because they literally didn't know how to make sense of everything that was happening and it just became overwhelming. And so there's a tendency when that happens to want to disengage and to just be like, well, I remember when Facebook was about puppies and baby Mm. photos and can we just go back to that?
1: But do you think that we can evolve tools to deal with this onslaught of information? Yeah. You do. I really do. And I think the core
2: thing is, and this is where the science comes, becomes useful, is it's understanding how our own thinking works. It's understanding, because once you understand that you have a Dunbar number and that there is a limit to how many relationships you can track in your head, mm-hmm. then you realize that, and I read an article yesterday by a guy on crack.com named David Wong, who described it as the monkey sphere. And so, you know, there's your monkey sphere, and that's your tribe of 150 people that you can track. And everything outside of that is some sort of abstraction or stereotype where you're like, you know, Big Pharma, or the cable company, or the government, or, you know, Mm -hmm. social justice warriors. And once you understand that these things are just stories, then you're aware that the stories may have real problems. They may be useful, they may be practical, they may give you a sort of first approximation as to what to expect when talking to someone, but then that story has to be revised. So, you know, you and I meet, We don't really know who the other person is but we have some sort of working assumptions so that we're at least not walking in totally blind and then through the course of the conversation we refine those assumptions but understanding the advantage that you and i have is that we understand that we're working with narratives and the real problem for a lot of people is they don't understand that they're even working with narratives they confuse their stories for the truth And so what ends Mm -hmm. up happening is that's why they have such difficulty having these interactions. I mean, you know, I drove up to your house. We barely knew each other. And now we're having a productive conversation. And why is it that that's possible for us? Is that possible for everyone? I think it's
1: possible for everyone. Uh, Is it seamless for everyone is maybe the better? Well, but getting back to my question, whether we can evolve tools to deal with the increased... Onslaught of information. It seems like what you said was yes, but then what you described was mm-hmm. a way of understanding our limitations, but not transcending those limitations. Oh, we can't. We can't transcend the biology. Right. That's, so that's we've, done. We've got the Dunbar's number. No matter. And yeah. for people who don't know, Dunbar's number refers to the idea that each species. You can sort of look at the neocortex of each species of primate and from that um, guess, with very high level of accuracy, how many individuals are in the typical social group of that species. And for Homo sapiens, it's about 150, and then experimentally it's been found that very few people have more than 150 friends, true friends that they know what's happening in their lives and they sort of keep track, even if you have 4,000 quote friends on facebook you're really only keeping track of about 150 people in your life that's all you can handle and so we've got a built-in limitation there and you're saying by understanding we have a built-in limitation then we can partly compensate or have some awareness of the fact that we're working within that limitation but we're not evolving no a different
2: limitation. I think I think you know human biology has not really changed that much since the rise of agriculture. Right. And the what you know the smart thing to do is to accept that the hardware is pretty much the same. Right. And then to do human-centric design. Okay, so, you know, if you a uh, uh, keyboard is designed around the way my
1: hand works. It's, it's not, in fact.
2: Well, or it's not.
1: Because <laughs> <laughs> that whole, you know, the, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Someone designed yeah. a keyboard that actually is so much more efficient right. with the letter spacing and all that. Uh, that. And to me, that's one of those amazing examples of how things get ingrained into the culture. Yep. And then it doesn't matter if another idea is nope. better. Well, and that's the... I I should explain this because people don't know what I'm talking about. This is the danger. You and I sort of have so much overlap in our intellectual history that we... Right. um, But the keyboard thing is that the the letter uh, placement on a keyboard was designed to make it intentionally awkward to type... Because the the keys would come up, and if the if you hit two keys next to each other, often they would jam. Mm-hmm. So they spread out the most used letters so that they wouldn't uh, jam, and that's the least efficient way to type. And now we don't have keys these these metal keys flying up anymore. It's totally unnecessary. But because so many people learn to type that way, you can't change it. Fuck. Well, And that's that's one of the examples, the QWERTY keyboard versus... QWERTY.
2: The, QWERTY that's yeah, what QWERTY I was looking for. Versus QWERTY versus Dvorak.
1: Dvorak. Uh, um, <laughs> you're good at this. You have the gene <laughs> for remembering details. I noticed that well, you remember all the author's names. Yeah. You're very good at citation. You have a very good citation... Uh, well, the, that's the problem gene. in, in general. The citation gene is
2: amazing. <laughs> um, but, the, but the problem is when you're when you're trying to really do interdisciplinary work, uh, that when you're having these conversations, there's a danger that people are like, oh, this is just all this guy's opinion. As opposed to if you're telling the story and then you're like, and if you want, you can look this person up and this person up. Oh, yeah, and then they no. understand very clearly that all you're doing is aggregating what's already there.
1: Yeah, um, Or cherry picking if they disagree with
2: Or cherry picking if they disagree with you. I get
1: accused of cherry picking all the time. Yep.
2: Well, there's all sorts of, I mean, I think that's what's interesting is that, you know, there's so many rhetorical strategies that humans use to discredit the people that they don't want to really engage with. Yeah. Uh, Like the use of, the the or rather the abuse of logical fallacies mm. um, among these because I've been dealing with all these different groups of fundamentalists and whether it's the Christian fundamentalists the libertarian fundamentalists the anarcho capitalists or the atheist fundamentalists the new atheists they all are obsessed with logical fallacies. So give us an example. So for example, there's this logical fallacy straw man argument, right? Mm. Where you basically <clears throat> what the straw man fallacy is. I take your argument I misrepresent it in such a way that it's a straw man it's like a scarecrow and then I beat up that straw man and then I'm like ha ha I've beaten your argument but I haven't right. really beaten your argument I've just created this paper tiger that I can then beat the shit out of right but so anytime you just I've, I've tried to challenge a bunch of these people and what they always do is they're like dude you're straw manning dude you're straw manning so hard right <laughs> and then you get into it and you're like okay let's be specific about what is your argument Uh, Like, for example, the whole Richard Dawkins selfish gene thing where I said, you know, he has misrepresented the degree to which uh, selfishness is important in human nature. And they're like, dude, you're strawmanning so hard you're misrepresenting his argument. And I'm like, I'm quoting from him. him. And then, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, people misinterpreted his work. And then you say, well, people seem to consistently misinterpret his work in the same way. So at what point does that become the fault of the communicator rather than the fault of the audience?
1: Well, I think if you're quoting directly from him, because, you know, obviously I'm sort of Uh, presuming I'm going to be attacked for a lot of this stuff. So I'm quoting from him directly, repeatedly from different books where he's saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think once you do that, it doesn't matter if other people are misinterpreting it or not. I mean, you're quoting from the guy's books and it's not a misstatement. It's a central principle that he's repeated over his career. But what he's done is, uh, you know, and this is I think there's just
2: a lack of intellectual accountability in science. And just in the world in general, yeah. where he, you know, because a lot of what brought this this conflict over the selfish gene to a head was the fact that Jeff Skilling's favorite book was the selfish gene, and he ran Enron on those principles. Mm. And then, of course, that's really embarrassing for Richard Dawkins, uh, because to be, you know, in any way, you know, responsible, your work has been used to justify this this economic catastrophe that ruined all these people's lives and lost their pensions.
1: And what would Darwin think? Yeah, exactly. What would Darwin think? You know, poor Darwin. Poor Darwin. I mean, Dar. <laughs> You know, I, you were talking earlier about um, The the Economist um, who wrote two books. Oh, Adam Smith. Adam Smith, right? How in the treatise on moral sentiments is actually, from what I remember, there's a lot in there about how people have an impulse toward generosity and taking care of one another and all it's this sort of... The- First, anti-selfishness it's
2: the first line of the book what is it Whoso, whosoever selfish howsoever selfish man may be a, supposed to be there are evidently some things in his nature which compel him towards altruism right. or something exactly like that. yeah I, I quoted the, that in, yeah.
1: in my manuscript it's
2: literally the first line of yeah. the book is right. about
1: altruism and darwin wrote the same thing that's right darwin wrote about how tribes that cooperate and take care of one another do much better than yep. tribes that are selfish and so on so but as we talked about earlier that aspect of their work has been abandoned yep. and and uh, suppressed even in favor of the fragments of their work that support this ruthless individualistic capitalist notion of human right. nature uh and and you know andrew carnegie Mm-hmm. He set up all those libraries in yep. Pennsylvania, where I grew up. The only thing he required there 's one book that had to be in every one of those libraries Darwin Wow, yeah, because Carnegie, as mm-hmm. a you know a billionaire in right. today 's terms, saw his understanding of Darwin was that it justified extreme wealth, mm-hmm. you know, to the survival of the fittest. Well, yep. I'm obviously the fittest. This yep. is nature. This is just how nature works. I, you know, fuck all y'all. Mm-hmm. I have no responsibility to take care of anybody. i I win. That's the right. way nature works. It's ruthless. Red in tooth and claw. And, and, uh, Dawkins buys into that. I quote from, I forget which of his books it is, but it's, uh, this amazing passage where he says, "In the time it's taken me to write this sentence, you know, hundreds of thousands of animals have been ripped apart, oh, you is. know, and with their <laughs> blood dripping down the jaws yeah. of the predators," and and he just he gets so almost like fetishistically yeah. fascinated with suffering yeah. and the universe is all about suffering and mm-hmm. death and destruction and you know worms eating animals yeah, from the inside yeah, yeah. and it's like who? How about some fucking perspective here, man? How about some sense of proportion? Yeah. You know, you look out into the forest. You don't hear screaming. Uh, you know, of animals being ripped apart at all times. Well, that's the difference: is that we don't Dude. hear that,
2: but Richard Dawkins, he does. does. Yeah, in his head, it's a, I mean, It's that Friday the Thirteenth out
1: there. I mean, um, fucking Hobbes. I talked about this in yeah. Sex at Dawn. Like Hobbes actually said, my mother gave birth to two, to two children: myself and fear. Wow. You know, because as his mother was pregnant, as she was Mm -hmm. about to give birth, the Spanish Armada was attacking England. So, like, he was born in terror, and he lived his whole... Produced this vision of a world that was incredibly brutal and terrifying.
2: Well, it's the same thing as I always love that Arab quote. You know, it's better to live a thousand days, a thousand years of tyranny than one day of anarchy. And... (laughs) Uh, Do you agree with that? Well, I think that's the thing, is if you... If you are one of the, if you live in anarchy, if you have that experience, hmm. then you know that is. I mean, if you look at what, for example, the Russians went through after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the nineties were, you know, horrific for the Russians, and so there is that craving. The eighties sucked
1: too, man. The eighties sucked too yeah, Did the sixties and the fifties? Yeah. I, I think Russia. God, <laughs> what a, a shithole, man! <laughs> <laughs> Never. But would it's
2: have. it's also it's a self inflicted shithole. Like, it's, it's not, you know, all, you know... and Because, I mean, the Russians have this brutal pessimism. Mm. And so there's just always this... I mean, you know, I think the alcoholism statistics are... Yeah. You know, 3% of Americans die of alcohol-related causes. 30-plus mm. percent of Russians die of alcohol-related causes. Um, and there's just this expectation that, you know, when you... T- I, I took Russian in college. I traveled to Russia a bunch of times. I yeah. studied Russian... And you know it's always interesting to talk to Russians who have left Russia mm-hmm. because you know they're very fl- frank about you know Ruskaya Dusha, right the Russian soul, which is just this it's this It's this psychology that is a mix of brutal pessimism expecting everything that's is going to fail, uh, and then this occasional delusional sort of mystical optimism that somehow everything magically will work out. Hmm. Um, and it's it's not a functional psychology, it's a reason yeah. why it consistently produces dysfunctional states, yeah, and I think once you start to think of these cultures in terms of families, you know Tolstoy has that great line at the beginning of Anna Karenina where he says, uh all happy families are alike all yeah. unhappy families are you know yeah. dysfunctional in a different way yeah. and that's you know that's true for cultures too and russian it russia is not a happy family It's never been a happy family and it the the patterns of dysfunction that it throws up are the
1: same again and again and yeah. again um so it, before we because yeah. obviously we could do this forever ever Who who the fuck are you? Who the fuck fuck am I? What do you do? do? Are you a science writer?
2: Well, so I, um, like Brian Callen... Brian's
1: a comedian, right? Brian's
2: a comedian, but his dad was my dad's boss at Citibank. Um, So the first house that I went to after being born in Saudi Arabia was Brian's house. And we had this very similar experience of growing up all over the world, moving Uh, between countries. And so, you know, uh, there's the old joke about science that, you know, science isn't research, it's Mm. me-search. And so it was very clear moving around that people are all the same, and yet we're so different. And so it's that, for me, my whole life has been trying to figure out that tension between what is shared humanity, what is culture... And then, you know, what is the productive, happy
1: way to live? That's... You... I often describe my life that yeah. way. You know, distinguishing what is human from what is cultural. That's right. That's what it's been all about.
2: And you had that great line which I hadn't I've been a fan of Joseph Campbell for a long time, but I'd no. never heard that detribalization.
1: Detribalization, yeah. And it's
2: that's the point. It's yeah. it's detribalization and you know, we've come at the same problem from different angles mm. but you know, I uh I majored in biochemistry um because, you know, I thought that was sort of science was where the answers were and then went and worked in a cancer lab. I worked with Jim Watson uh, mm. for a year. I lived in his house, and then worked in a tumor virus lab um, in Boston. In this was at Cold Spring Harbor. Oh. Um, and then went to Harvard, majored in biochemistry, and then. But at that point, had already realized that there were real problems with the culture of science. Didn't really feel attracted to it. Moved out here, started tutoring to pay my bills. And then, out of that, you know ended up writing a book that was designed to take all of the, oh, science, the
1: conspiracy straight a conspiracy yeah yeah, yeah. Um, I saw I looked that up on Amazon, good reviews, yeah, people like it uh, people like it yeah um, and that's about ways of thinking yeah. and learning uh, so what we what the
2: book was actually doing was detribalizing people, mm. we were aware even at the time that. The, the culture of American education was setting kids up to fail, mm. right? Essentially, rather than having a culture that was well-adapted to the environment and helped them succeed, it was a culture that was setting them, self, setting them up to fail, to be stressed, to get
1: poor grades, to
0: right. not succeed. To fail
1: in the educational
2: That's system.
0: That's
1: right. So what do you think, like take it uh, out a step? Yeah how do you think the american educational system prepares people for life after education i think it doesn't yeah so <laughs> so even if you succeed in the yeah. educational system you're still kind of fucked
2: well i think the the crucial thing is it's not necessarily even that the educational like the, the, you live in the age of the internet you can look up anything you want yeah. all the tools are available books the access to information is yeah. has never been better right um so, you know, the and a lot a lot and then there's this separate requirement that you go to school. And I in general what I tell my students is you have to reframe your perspective on school. The point of school is not that they're going to teach you. You're going to teach yourself. That's your job. But the challenge of school is to succeed in a dysfunctional environment. And it's like the old Frank Sinatra song, if you can make it there, you can make
1: it anywhere. Um, and so, But can you, should you, should you aspire to succeed in a dysfunctional environment? What Doesn't that distort your own, especially at a young age, doesn't that distort your spirit? I think it depends on whether
2: you're trying to conform to their wishes and desires Mm -hmm. or whether you are getting the education that you want and need. And then separately, you know, in in the pursuit of that. So imagine that you're taking algebra. You know, you learn the algebra because you want to learn the algebra and you want to have that skill set. But if you're doing that work, then taking the test and doing well in the test becomes fairly straightforward and fairly easy. Hmm. And then you're just doing the... I mean, the the way that I always thought of it when I was in high school is it's hoop jumping. So much of education is about hoop jumping. And you either jump through the hoop or you don't. And if you jump through the hoop, like Shamu, you get a fish, right? And in practice, then you get to... If you want to go to... If you decide that... Because there are certain areas where you need credentials. Like if I wanted to practice medicine, I need to go to medical school. That's yeah, the reality. Yeah. On the other hand, if I want to be a science writer, I don't really necessarily need to. Yeah. Uh, if I want to be a podcaster, don't need to. So you you, <laughs> you don't
3: you don't oh
2: no <laughs> you actually have to insert your degree oh, into into the machine before it'll let you record.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not qualified.
2: Shit. Yeah. Um,
1: so, so what are you doing now? You you well, co-hosting this
2: podcast. Co-hosting this podcast and then. What we've realized is that you know the the phenomenon that we experienced through education was a small part of a much much larger phenomenon which is that you know if you science is a belief system right but it's the least well organized belief system in history right like a christian can go and read the bible right a muslim can go and read the quran but trying to get any sort of doctrinal clarity on science is a nightmare Like Mm. you can't get decent clarity on nutrition and exercise. Mm. You can't get decent clarity on education. You can't get decent clarity on economics. You can't get decent clarity on any of these is things. Is that because it's poorly structured or because it's
1: constantly evolving?
2: Well, I, th- I think in terms of, I think if you look, I think science is completing a big circle. Hmm. So, you know, there's a, the, the Western intuitions of history are always that it's a straight line and it's hmm. up. And then, you know, the Eastern intuitions are always that it's cyclical. Right. And I think you get the best model by combining the two. Spiral. It's a spiral. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think we're in the process of completing a spiral, um, and it will continue to evolve and you'll continue to get better. So, what is the
1: spiral we're completing?
2: Well, uh, I think that there's, uh, you know, E.O. Wilson talked about consilience, right? Yeah. All the disciplines coming together. Mm. And the we've, you know, when we started the scientific project, there was no overarching framework. There is now an overarching framework, which is evolution. And then what you're finding is is that it's the the everybody in practice believes in evolution everyone it's just a question of how far you extend it up and down. Mm. So, What is what is capitalism? What is Adam Smith talking about when he's talking about the right. free market? He's talking about evolution. Better product. That's right. Outcompetes
1: the, the worst product. They're yeah.
2: guided as if by an invisible hand. Right. Right? right. Richard Dawkins doesn't talk about God. He talks about the blind watchmaker. But in every case or the wisdom of crowds. In every case what you're talking about is some sort of abstraction because right. humans needed character <laughs> right, to make sense of these things that explains the fact that from everybody just doing their thing it can add up to these amazing results so the big problem for christian fundamentalists who often are yeah. ardent die-hard capitalists who then separately don't believe in evolution and all you have to really do is you already believe in evolution evolution is just genetic capitalism <laughs> right and it, it emerges through a mixture of cooperation and competition and all these different forces um, you know Richard Dawkins does he believe in evolution of course he just doesn't think that evolution extends to groups or he doesn't think that it's multi-level selection as as, you know David Sloan Wilson would say so everybody believes in this thing and even you're finding there's really interesting stuff happening in physics where they're starting to use that evolutionary paradigm to make sense of you know that somehow that emerges from the laws of physics. So um, Cesar Hidalgo, who's at MIT and is connecting physics and evolution and economics in this fascinating way, he has this mm. book called Why Information Grows. Mm. And there is this tendency in the universe towards complexity, towards more and more organized society, more and more complex systems, more and more complex forms of life. And
1: the question is why, Which we don't fully have the answer to. But isn't one of the fundamental laws the tendency toward entropy? Exactly. But just as,
2: you know, is is evolution fundamentally about uh, competition or collaboration? Well, it's a tension between the two. Mm. And so in the same way, there's a tension between entropy disorder and increasing order. So you take in food calories and you use that energy to order your body. But there's an, out, there's an expense there where the result is that you have to disorder the universe, right? You pump out heat, you pump mm, out all these forces. Mm. So there's, these, there's a competing tension between... It's not really true. You don't have to look very hard to see that the universe isn't universally becoming more disordered. It's that the universe, life is ordering itself and disordering the
1: universe as it does it. Hmm. Um Wow, that's an interesting concept. I'm gonna to have to think about that for a few decades. <laughs> uh, I think we all have to think about it for a few days. And what excites me decades,
2: I Decades. I <laughs> oh, decades, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well we'll have to brew a little more coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we'll but, get,
1: but, yeah. But, that's interesting. okay, so life is life is is moving toward order, increased mm-hmm. complexity and order and As a byproduct throwing off disorder. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see that. I can see that. What do you think? You've obviously thought about evolution a lot. And here's something I wouldn't write, but I guess it's safe to talk about it. (laughs) I wouldn't write it because it could be misinterpreted in so many different ways. And because Uh even by talking about this shit, you enter into this raging war that's going on. Uh, Do you feel well let me put it directly I feel in, and I'm not I don't consider myself a great expert on evolutionary theory or anything but the more I read evolution and think about evolution the more I feel that there are pockets of mystery mm-hmm. that evolutionary theory does not explain mm-hmm. and I I kind of feel like, and I, I think it's it's true. Obviously, it's 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 fundamentally uh, irrefutable that evolution occurs in life, and that you know there's most things are explicable by way of evolutionary theory. But there are things that aren't explicable, and I kind of feel like the people who are resisting it mm-hmm. maybe intuit that somehow, you well, know. I think the crucial, interesting thing
2: is the intuition. So the, the degree to which... I mean, there's this... Uh, did you read Michael Lewis's The Undoing Project?
1: That's the recent thing? That's the recent no, thing. No, no. I was going to ask if you'd read it, because yeah. you're obviously familiar with... Kahneman's first. Yeah, yeah. Kahneman's first. Well, I'd read like... He's a great writer. Michael Lewis is amazing. Fuck, i love... I mean, I'm not interested in anything he writes about until this book, really. You know, I don't get... uh, Wall Street, like, okay, you know, baseball, I don't give a fuck about baseball. (laughs) I mean, you know, economics in general, I find really dull. Mm -hmm. Uh, But everything i'll read anything he's written just because he's such a good writer there are very few writers that good and the interesting thing is is that having read
2: all this behavioral econ having read all the kahneman and Tversky stuff i was like why you know i love michael lewis am i really going to read this book i already know this material but what he did which is so brilliant is is that it isn't about the material at all it's about the relationship yeah yep yeah. And what's fascinating is, you know, there's the, one of the ideas we talk about a lot on the Brian Callen show is idea sex. Um, and that just in the same way that there's genetic sex, there's idea sex. Yeah. And what the Undoing Project is really about is, is it's very clear that it's about a relationship. And you find these things that float around. You know, they used to, I mean, you know, conversation is sometimes called intercourse. Um, And these two guys were very different. You know, Kahneman was very quiet. Tversky was loud and abrasive. And for some reason, they were intuitively attracted to each other. And, you know, they started hanging around. You know, it's like a waggle dance with bees. They're doing this little mating ritual. And then they would disappear into a room and have these long conversations and be giggling, and they're like schoolgirls. They would go on these long walks together. And then what ends up happening is that as their work becomes more and more successful, there becomes, you know, Tversky starts to get singled out as the big guy, and Kahneman is not getting the attention. Ego. Ego. And it destroys the relationship. Yeah. Um, And, you know, Kahneman described it as being worse than the failure of a
1: marriage. Um, And I think what's interesting is that... That was the failure of a marriage based on nobody could decide who was the wife. That's right. You know, and and sort of antiquated terms mm-hmm. where the wife takes the you know back seat
2: or even just to recognize that everybody i think i think you know you see this often happens in science Jonas Salk did something similar where you know they had this the Salk laboratory was great and super productive and then what happens is suddenly all this credit and glory and attention comes in, and he's like, me, it's all me. And that destroys the relationship. Mm. And I think the, the point is, is that if you look at really effective organizations like Pixar, they're very anti-hierarchical. They work in the same way as the football team that you talk in, mm. about in Hunter-Gatherer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the key to maintaining good idea sex to really unlocking the wisdom of crowds is that constant checking of egos. Mm. It is that teasing, and it is maintaining that anti-hierarchical thing. Mm. And the problem is, is that you know, that's not something that we've even really understood. Right, we're only starting to really get clarity on that now, so that you can start to do it a little bit more intentionally, where you deliberately tease, you deliberately check egos, and you deliberately are maintaining that mood that really
1: unlocks right. innovation. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, if I wanted to, to cash in, uh, I really should write like a a book about how to use hunter gatherer principles to run your business. Yep, and that's that's the that's main the one. Yep. Yeah yeah
2: um and i and I think that's the that's the interesting thing and I think what's cool about the podcasting world is that in many senses it has that culture you yeah. know Joe rogan's podcast this podcast it's just a bunch of people talking and figuring things out right it is an undoing project and then even within that, we get to benefit from the wisdom of crowds because people reach out, they suggest books, they have conversations, they find holes in your thinking. You know, if you really embrace that rather than being like, fuck you, random dude, I don't know. And you say, oh, wait a minute. No, actually, I think you have a point there. I should do that. And that's the key is really using, you can use the whole internet as your team of rivals Mm. and use them to constantly improve your thinking and build a community in, you know, I mean, that's what ISIS and Al-Qaeda have, or Al-Qaeda in particular has done so well, they understand that who cares about borders? Borders are irrelevant and you can operate as a series of cells. And so that's what we really want to do, and we want to engage as many people and have as many people doing a similar thing where we essentially operate like Al-Qaeda. Um, Who's we here? Brian Callen and oh, I.
1: Oh, And okay. then increasingly there's... There so people, you're the ISIS of podcasts? Is that what you're doing? We
2: basically want to practice intellectual terrorism.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and we want to make <laughs> knowledge bombs. And <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah.
1: Oh, boy. You're going to yeah. get me in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: But, but specifically, I mean, instead of, you know, having terror cells, we're, yeah. starting, we're, we're basically setting up mixed mental arts dojos. And, you know, they're, uh, I've taught podcasts with people and people are like, I'm a dojo, I'm a dojo, I'm a dojo. And there's no hierarchy. No one owns anything. Mm. Um, it's just for everybody is already doing this. It's already that you're having these conversations evolving, you're thinking Joe Rogan is doing that. Mm-hmm. I talked with a bunch of guys in South Africa who do something called the Renegade Report. There are guys in Australia who do dead center politics. There are all these podcasts all over and it's just us basically sharing and connecting ideas. And the more we do that, the more you start to unleash the wisdom of crowds. Right. And that's the real opportunity. The real opportunity is to use the internet to unleash the wisdom of crowds and it exists, it's out there, if you go and you look around, you often find that many people, independently of the scientific research, have already figured out many of these patterns. So you can read Richard Nisbet's A Culture of Honor About Honor Cultures, or you know Thomas Sowell's Black Rednecks White Liberals, but you can also just poke around the internet and you find that someone has already made this meme that puts right side by side some chick from the South holding an AK-47 and a Bible with an American flag in the background, and then a chick from the Arab world you know who's holding an ak-47 holding a quran and has like an arabic flag in the background and they've already and they caption explain the difference so they've already spotted that pattern now i don't think that person read all the academic research i think humans are just good at finding patterns Mm. themselves but real wisdom comes from adding all those patterns together and really starting to get more and more powerful ways of making sense of these things
1: yeah Yeah. If I were setting up a dojo, I think the first, uh, you know, you wouldn't get a yellow belt until you'd learn to question the premise. Yeah. I think that's like, you know, stretching exercises or something. That's the most basic thing. Yep. But it's something that I don't think. Is taught in educational system, at least in the U.S., and in fact, sort of the opposite of that is mm-hmm. taught. You're taught not to question the yep. premise. Just answer the question. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me yep. why I'm asking that question. Don't a- don't question why the question is framed that way. Yep. Just shut up and do what you're told. That's you know? right. Yeah, it's, it's sort of an anti-educational process. It's indoctrination. It's indoctrination, And there's a big exactly.
2: difference between indoctrination and education. Yeah. Indoctrination is putting in a way of thinking, and education is drawing you out so that you can think for yourself. Right. And uh, the, my favorite part of, the, of your podcast with Joe Rogan was when Joe is talking about the Surrey women who do this weird thing where they cut the lips and they put oh. the plates in, <laughs> and then you're like, well, let me tell you about this other weird culture,
1: right? <laughs> Laser their pussies. <laughs> but
2: That's that's the thing. I think the first thing to, you know, in terms of questioning the premise, the first thing is to realize that you have a culture and most people don't even realize they have a culture and that the things that you think are normal are really just the prejudices
1: of your own culture. Right. And some of those things make sense. Which you and I both got growing up because we moved around a lot. But yeah, people who grow up in one place they they don't you know, it's like this idea this idea people have that everyone else has an accent. Yeah. Like... <laughs>
0: Come on, man
1: yeah isn't that funny that yeah. you were born in the one place where people don't have accent, <laughs> that <sense>, right <laughs> really that's really right. and so, where
2: and where the one place where people eat normal food, yeah 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 well, that's why I started
1: sex at dawn with the yeah. food stuff, yeah. you know' cause I wanted to get people thinking about like. Okay, wait, what is normal? Yeah. Like, is this normal? Wait, what is, yeah, what am I doing here? So where else did you live growing up? Uh, I was born in Saudi. Then we moved to New York. Then we moved to
2: Brazil. Then we moved back to New York. Then to Greece. In what ages? Like in Brazil? Were you conscious? uh, Yeah, it was like, 2 to 5 or something yeah. i think i always have that's heard, not
1: conscious come on oh
2: it was i listen yeah. that that was the you want to talk speaking about speaking portuguese you wanted, yeah, yeah and, and you want to talk about sex at dawn uh-huh. like that was really the peak of my sexual life was <laughs> oh, 2 that's, to 5 that's, rough, it's really, dude. Sad. that's it's rough. really sad that's really yeah. sad but i mean you know i at, at one point i was dating two brazilian girls and that was like i mean it doesn't get any better than that when you
1: were four when i was four yeah. and then
2: it's just been downhill yeah. since then oh, which is pretty man. sad
1: where where in Brazil. Rio. Uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and then you know, Greece for two years. And your like, father was an economic hitman. Oh, yeah, that is that is what he was. <laughs> um, you know, I, it's I, I, in general. I think that he. Um, there are things I, I, I listen. I can't evaluate my father's career. Yeah, but you know, he I, was
1: an international banker.
2: He was an international banker, um, and I, I know some things that he. You know, my there's a there's there's a friend of the family, I say friend in quotes, but you know, he's, he once said to my dad, you know, integrity is a very gray concept. And my father was like, oh, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> and you know, my father ended up leaving banking. And I think that's because, well, I know why, you know, um, but he was asked to sign off some books that were, you know, all that off balance sheet accounting and he didn't feel comfortable doing that. Mm. Um, and I think it's like any of these, any profession can be done ethically. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe not any profession. Advertising. <laughs> mm, I, my father was in public relations. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, I look back and yeah, it's it's hard. Like you say, evaluating your your father's career or anyone you love, you know. And yep. Especially when they were making money to, like, take care of you. you. (laughs) There's some interesting ethical considerations there. But, yeah, banking's rough. Banking, public relations. My ex-girlfriend was in modeling. And Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, fashion? What a bunch of bullshit that is, you know? Make women feel bad about themselves. (laughs)
2: People have to come up with narratives to allow them to cope. I mean, the, the things you hear about fashion and how... It's about... uh it's like, art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like the there's that great line at the end of Derek Zoolander where they say, models make... Or no, it's at the beginning. Models make people feel good about themselves, Derek. They teach them really cool ways to wear their hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah we need that yeah we, we need, need that, that in the lot. world we need more of that yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so i interrupted you brazil so that was so, your your big sex years yeah, the
2: big sex years for brazil and then uh back to new york briefly and then to greece for two years uh, um and then uh from 8 to 18 i was in england
1: oh that's right uh-huh. yeah that's why you say uh bean bean and but that's canadian i hear canada when i hear bean
2: everybody because of the juxtaposition of like weird british words with an american background yeah people think i'm canadian all the time yeah um and then uh you know then went to college went went to cold spring harbor for a year then went to college oh, so
1: you did the research before college yeah we
2: took a year off took a gap year which is a very british
1: thing to do right um yeah. and then moved out here so did you go to, like, Eton or some fancy... I did fancy... actually go to Eton. You did? Yeah. Did you get buggered? Uh, well... Because <laughs> that's part of the deal, right?
2: Well, you know, it's the old joke about uh, the British Navy, right?
1: No, it's that?
2: The British Navy is built on three foundations, rum, buggery, and the lash. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, which is why they fucking mutinied. Yeah, all you know, the time.
2: Uh, Mutiny on the bounty. On
1: the bounty, yeah. that was all about pussy, mm-hmm. you know? Like, God, get us off this boat. Um yeah no, what, there was a lot what of buggery. was that like there Eden. was a lot of
2: buggery what? at Eton.
1: yeah i mean i mean and we're joking, but there really is a strange perverse um sort of fetishistic culture of upper class british yep Education, mm-hmm. you know, uh, particularly the public schools.
2: Well, it's like any of these things. You're when you're in it, you're like, oh, this is just normal, and then you leave it, and you're like, that ain't normal. That thing the priest asked me to do was not okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, and you see it in
1: the politics
2: too, because oh, those
1: guys all went to Eton and then well, Harvard or, or Cambridge or Oxford. or whatever.
2: Well, that was the, the the best thing that came. There was this great article that came out after Brexit. Um, in the FT, and it was some guy who had all gone to all of these schools, and he said that Brexit was a coup of one public school set of public school boys against another, mm. because Boris Johnson and David Cameron went to Eton together, mm. went to Oxford together, yeah. and they just had this long, long rivalry, right. and so ultimately that just plays out on the international stage
1: where it's about beating the other guy. It's not about the issues. But then in the end, Boris Johnson got Johnson. Well, exactly. Like the day after, suddenly he was no longer in contention for prime minister. What the hell happened?
2: Well, he was, I mean, the, 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 the line in that article that I thought was so important was, that, you know, Boris Johnson is witty. He's funny. That's, you know, what Brits do. I mean, it's very much what Richard Dawkins does. It's whole rhetorical strategy. Right. where But they use humor to deflect anything of emotional complexity. Right. Uh, emotional difficulty or technical complexity. Hmm. So what happened is, you know, Boris Johnson would be asked all these difficult questions about Brexit. How's it going to work? What are you guys practically going to do? Right. And then he would say things like, my policy on cake is that I'm pro-having it and pro-eating it. (laughs) You know, and if you just chuckle, 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 oh, it's so funny. But then it's only after he wins that you come to realize, oh, you had no plan.
1: Well, he wasn't expecting to win.
2: No. Right? Right. He was just, I mean, that's the point. It was the great fun of, yeah. you know, the Oxford Union, which is the big debating, the debating society at thing, Oxford. Yeah. It's yeah. all about who can be funnier, who can be wittier. And you're not actually, you don't really care about the issues. You're not actually arguing for a particular case. Right. It's just who can deliver the best it's one-liner. Yeah. posturing. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Um, and it's, you know, it's the same thing. If you look at Richard Dawkins, if you Google him... What you find is is that all the videos on YouTube are Richard Dawkins' best insults, Richard Dawkins' best comebacks, Richard yeah. Dawkins. You know, it's just all who can although, be funnier I, or wittier.
1: I gotta say, I I met Richard Dawkins. I was at a conference in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, uh, Ciudad de las Ideas. It's mm-hmm. called in in Puebla, and it's sort of like the TED of Mexico, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sp- sponsored by some Mexican mil- billionaire. Yeah, um, and Robert Sapolsky was there. Uh-huh. David Buss, Helen Fisher. Um, uh, it was a very interesting crowd of people, um, and uh, Dawkins. The big, the main event was a debate between Dawkins and Deepak Chopra. <laughs> 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 so I know it was ridiculous, uh, and so. Uh, So I'm sitting there, you know, in the VIP section next to Robert Sapolsky on one side. And I don't remember who was on the other side, but um, everybody was just so worked up, you know. Uh, Obviously, all of them with Dawkins, because the way it was being presented was like rationality versus religion, spirituality, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And Deepak Chopra is totally full of shit. You know, I mean, I actually at a different conference in toronto idea city which the the (laughs) the uh the slogan was ideas having sex oh great You mentioned earlier um chopra was there and he was talking and i happened to be sitting next to a nuclear physicist Mm -hmm. who had given a presentation earlier and chopra started with his you know quantum mechanics stuff (laughs) and i turned to this guy and i said to him does this make sense and and he said this is total <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> I said, thank you. I always thought, yeah. you know, but I'm not qualified yeah. to know. And that's the whole point of yeah. it. He starts saying this shit. You're like, does that it make sense? sense? I yeah. don't know. Does anyone know? Um, but anyway, at this thing in, in Mexico, they were doing this, this thing. And, you know, I, you know, clearly in terms of talking about science and evolution and so on, you, Richard Dawkins, knows what he's talking about. I disagree with him on yeah, a sure. lot of the atheism stuff and his vision of the, you know the world and all that. But he's a legit scientist, whereas Deepak Chopra is I don't know what the fuck he is. But um,
0: <laughs> he's a guru. He's
1: a <laughs> I mean, he is a medical doctor of some sort. Yeah. Um, but anyway, he uh, the thing is that rhetorically, Richard Dawkins was horrible Mm -hmm. he was horrible he made the most fundamental mistakes Mm -hmm. like the first thing you know dawkins said some stuff and dawkins is sitting back he's relaxed he's smiling his body language is open and comfortable Mm -hmm. you know dawkins has got his arms crossed his legs crossed he's all uptight and so uh deepak chopra said you know gave his opening statement or something and Richard Dawkins said, raise your hand if, uh, if you agree with this. And, and maybe half the audience raised their hands. He says, well, you're all liars or idiots. Yeah. Because this made no sense at all, what mm-hmm. he just said. You just... Fucking offended half your <laughs> the, um, audience, man. Yeah. The people you're trying to convince, because the right. other ones already agree with you. Right. Like yeah, he's lost it. Yeah. He's lost it. It's well, it, I think that's the and you know, I mean, there
2: are all these articles now saying has Richard Dawkins destroyed his reputation? Yeah, he's he's too uptight.
1: Yeah. Like he's, you're you're one of the most famous scientists in the world, dude. Yeah. Sit back and enjoy it. That's right. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. yeah ego again ego, ego. It you
2: up. but I think that's the key thing is you know I the the real opportunity for humanity is to you know be much more chill about all these things like I think that was it, what was interesting
1: about what <laughs> that's good. no it's like yeah. you, you're the modern day gandhi could everyone just chill the fuck, fuck out, out but yeah. it's true it is true it is in, true
2: it's not in, it's like any family dynamic right yeah. all, all problems can be fixed you have to talk them out yeah. and you have to be talking them out in the right emotional climate. Right. Like at the second in which it's all fast thinking and you're arguing, literally nothing is being resolved. You're literally just wasting everybody's time or
1: making it worse because all that worse. emotions being That's right. injected into it. Yeah. So
2: why not talk out your differences? And what you find when you do that with people is you always find out they have a point yeah. somewhere like the communists had a point. Right? Sure. They, their point was about, you know, inequality and all that stuff. Yeah. But what ends up happening is is that when they don't when their point doesn't get heard and they don't get to talk it out and then you don't talk about oh, okay, you know, we need some sort of better uh, you know, workers comp, health insurance, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Then they just get super angry and then it's like the only point is my point. Yeah. <laughs> and you lose yeah. all context on reality.
1: Well, do you ever feel like How old are you? 35. So you're, you might be too young to have come to this conclusion yet, but I, I feel like the older I get, you know, it's a cliche, the older I get, the more I see, the less I know, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But I feel like intellectually, that is the, that's the trajectory. Oh, totally. The more you learn, the less, you know, and you get to a point where everyone, as you say, everyone has a and any. Issue, I can see both sides of it. Yeah. And it starts to get frustrating in a way because there's a comfort in certainty. Of course. And um but I think an honest intellectual trajectory always moves away from certainty. Yep. And I think I mean even Trump, you know? Yeah. It's like I, I did this thing on my podcast where I'm like, look, I get it. I mm-hmm. would never vote for the guy. Right. But I certainly understand why people looked at that and said, Clinton, Mm -hmm. fuck that. Right. More of the same, fuck that. We voted for Obama because he said he was going to change shit. Right. For one reason or another, shit didn't get changed. Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep voting for change until something changes. That's right. Even if it means this fucking idiot. Well, if you I understand if that if you've got if you got two options and one of them is guaranteed to be shit, right? Then the one
2: that might potentially not be shit seems relatively appealing.
1: Or just a different kind of
2: shit. Or just a different kind of shit. Exactly. Yeah, it's like <laughs> rather than that super corny type
1: shit, like, <laughs> let's try give me some loose shit. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) some out of control
3: shit
2: (laughs) exactly Um, but it also I think comes down to and you know I think the most uh, you know one of the most useful things in Joe Henrik's The Secret of Our Success is he has that graph of you know you give an IQ test to a human toddler a chimp and an orangutan and you find out that you know on uh, causal intelligence on spatial intelligence Mm. on quantitative intelligence we're no better than the chimp or the orangutan the one area in which we're off the charts is social intelligence and I think that makes sense of so much of what 2016 was about, hmm. which is that, you know, the people who were Brexit Leave or the people who voted for Donald Trump, they may not have, you know, a fancy education in terms of economics or all of this sort of stuff, but they can read very clearly how uh, Hillary Clinton feels about them or David Cameron feels about them or all these economic experts. And they also, by the way, can tell shit's not working. Right. Like, I'm living here in Ohio, and I'm going to tell you there's an opioid epidemic, and I can't get a job, and all the jobs are leaving, and ISIS. So clearly, whoever's in charge currently doesn't know what they're doing, so they're like, let's swap it out. So I I think the basic problem is that trump has made a bunch of promises which are great promises to make he doesn't know how to fix those things but also i don't think hillary clinton did either and i think the sad truth is is that both sides have lost the plot and uh the challenge is now to figure rediscover the plot and then you know because the problem is, is you in order again it's internal accountability versus external accountability and what happens is that you know when you have an event like world war ii then everybody is really clear that we need to make shit work. So there's a level of political engagement. People are really wrestling with these ideas. The big problem in the 1950s was there was a lack of diversity between the two parties. They were too much on the same page, and they worried that it didn't give voters enough choice. Um, and then what happens is, and that's in Republic Lost by Larry Lessig.
1: Um, yeah, I'd question that, that that premise that, that they would worry... There were op-eds written at the time. That it's not giving them enough choice. Because the thing is, half the people aren't voting anyway. Nobody gives a fuck about their choice. Well, The last that... time people had a choice, you had the red scares. You that's know? right. And that's what they're worried about is that well, the choice... There was there was the red scare in in the
2: 50s, but that wasn't really even a choice between Republican and Democrat because Eisenhower, for example, didn't like McCarthy, hmm. but didn't feel comfortable standing up to him. Um, but in terms of social policies I mean, you know, who built all the highways? It was it was Eisenhower, Eisenhower right. So in terms of public works Projects, in terms of investment In terms of taxation There's actually a pretty broad-based consensus On a whole bunch of issues Between Republicans and Democrats in the 1950s Yeah. And then, obviously You have the 1960s, you have the culture wars You have this increasing bifurcation right. And, the, the, you know You're now at a level of, of such division and bipartisanship, um, and so much fragmentation. There's a reason why you know Mikhail Gorbachev says the world is preparing for a war. It's very much how it feels, um, in the sense that there are all these tensions, and you don't necessarily know which one is going to blow up, right? There's all the conflict in the South China Sea between China and all the other mm. states over, you know, these amazing pieces of land like the Spratly the Islands. <laughs> Let's worry about the Spratly For more. your
1: next vacation, consider the <laughs> Spratly Islands.
2: Or the parcels or whatever. Well, there's
1: some oil under there. Yeah, yeah there's that's some oil the under
2: there. There's some fishing rights. There's whatever, yeah. right? And then, you know, there's China's, because I was in Vietnam a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I just always love when you're at some museum in some country and then the it moves from being about the country's history to being about whatever the current political crisis is and that we're going to try and jam into the foreigners minds our
1: perspective on it on um, the Spratleys on the
2: Spratleys so I was at um I can't remember where it was was it uh I think it was in Hue right which was the imperial city of yeah Vietnam. beautiful
1: yeah. hue Amazing. although horrible horrible battles there yep
2: um, and so they uh, you know they, you're walking around the museum there's all this great history they're talking about all these sorts of things and then very quickly it becomes all about the Sprawleys and the parcels <laughs> and China's historical claim about the cow's tongue which is clearly bullshit as mm. you guys can all see yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it was pretty cool
1: did you get to Hoi An? Uh, no I didn't um, which is
2: also apparently amazing
1: I love the, it's a UNESCO World Heritage mm-hmm. site I loved Hoi An yeah, I didn't love Vietnam, though I have to say, in general, we were there three months—a uh, long time. It's—it was about two and a half months too long, as far yeah. as I was concerned. <laughs> no, I mean it was a—it's a beautiful country, and, and you know, the, there's a lot there's a lot to like about Vietnam. But um, I was traveling with my wife, mm-hmm. and she's uh, she's brown, and they're fucking racist as yeah. shit. Like, she got attacked three times, and everybody thought she was a whore, and, you know, and it was just, like, disrespectful, yeah. really nasty behavior. Yep. So. Well, the United States
2: often, people in America of often think that America has a monopoly on racism, and the level of racism that you find in the rest of the world. Yeah. Is
1: it's pretty incredible. truly
2: stra- staggering. Even
1: in Africa. Yeah. But I, the, the thing about African racism, and my wife was raised in Mozambique, and, mm-hmm. you know, she's. She prefers African racism to American racism mm-hmm. because in Africa it's just like you know I don't like black people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like okay, well now we know where you stand. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Whereas in America it's all this like oh no I oh yeah, black yeah, people yeah, are yeah. great oh yeah, yeah. but um, please don't play with my children yeah. you know like there's this weird kind of Dance. hidden bullshit going yeah. on yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, I didn't want to, you know, politics. So we we're talking about politics. For me, the the Republicans and the Democrats are like the Harlem Globetrotters and the Washington Generals. Mm-hmm. The Democrats are there to lose, mm-hmm. you know, because it's it's really just Tweedledee and Tweedledum. They're both yeah. corporate. They're both in the, in the pockets of corporate power and right. and the Democrats are pretending they're not. That's the right. only difference. The well, Republicans are like, we represent money. And the Democrats are like, we represent the working people, but not really because we're taking the money to keep us going. Bernie Sanders came in, I think, as a legitimate representative of non-moneyed people. And what did they do? They sabotaged him. They 100%. fucking you know, took care of him. But even if he had won through some fucking miracle... Nothing would have happened. Well, the, I mean, I think the you know a lot of this comes down to... Because I,
2: I supported Larry Lessig. I knew that Lessig wasn't going to win. Right. But I thought that if at least we could get Lessig into the debates, that yeah. at least that voice would be right. there. Right. They
1: wouldn't even let him in the debates. They wouldn't even yeah. let him in the debates. Yeah. And he was uh, a governor or senator? What, what was uh, he? No. Lessig was is a law professor. But wasn't he... Or, or his running mate was uh, who was his? He never declared a running mate. He tried to do all sorts of interesting. things well, He was the, the anti the the the
2: campaign finance guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he said, if if I win, I'll resign the day well, after I'm was elected. The, that was the original yeah. plan. Yeah, um, <laughs> that was kind of a bad. move It was
2: kind of a bad move, and he ultimately ended up changing.
1: It. Yeah, but interesting he, idea, but
2: yeah. yeah. But the, the main thing was to actually have a real conversation about campaign finance. Right. And, the point that he makes in his book Republic Lost is is that you know the this all really changed in the nineties in terms of the Democrats because there's he makes the distinction between big money and little money. Hmm. And big money is you know, Wall Street, big pharma, and you can't take the opposing side on that because the money there is just too big and there's not anybody on the other side who is like dealing out major cash for being anti Wall Street or being anti big pharma. Right. Um, or not even anti, just checking that power. Um, And then there's little money, which is all these social issues like abortion, gun control. And there, it's actually a smart strategy to be on opposite sides because you can whip up the pro-gun people with the fear of guns being taken away, and you can whip up the moms with the fear of gun shootings. But it's all basically become... You know, Washington is now a fundraising town. That's all it does. It raises funds, and then... The system isn't even good for wall street and big pharma right because what ends up happening is is that they it's a parasitic system where they create loopholes but it's not good to permanently give these people loopholes because if you permanently give them loopholes then they don't have to pay up anymore so it's always you give them a loophole but then you're always dangling the loophole like, uh, don't want to have to take this away right, you right. better pony up and so it just becomes, it's all, I mean, I think, and this is where evolutionary thinking becomes so helpful, because what's ended up happening is this, this is parasitic behavior. No. It's rent-seeking behavior, and it's not good for anyone. And, you know, a lot of what you have to do is there's, you can have a healthy society. And in a healthy society, you have created the right sorts of checks and balances, where you're ensuring that that sort of parasitic behavior is not rewarded and is checked, um, or you can have a society that is just bloated down with rent-seeking behavior and parasites just becomes slugged and torpid and is bad for right.
1: everyone. But, uh, and my feeling is that American society is past the point of no return.
2: Well, it's, that's...
1: <laughs> seriously. Yeah. I, I mean, I say that in all seriousness. It's, it's no longer salvageable. I think there's so got to be ride this to the bottom. It's I mean, how much more obvious can it be? Look at this guy who is now president of this well, country. Alternatively,
2: I think in terms of, you know, for talking about addiction. Firstly, I don't believe that's the thing. Is it I is it that we America is alcoholic or that America has been alcoholic? And then the question is, you know, the I think that the where we are now is potentially hitting bottom. And Potentially,
1: but the problem is that the, the structural uh, impediment to change is insurmountable.
2: Well, I think that the real impediment to change is that the people are either asleep, uh, complacent, or disempowered. Uh, disempowered, feel hopeless, feel overwhelmed. The problem is, is I don't think that's the thing. I I think the, so I had this interview that I did with Peter Schiff, who is this like super libertarian guy that wants to get rid of the FDA. Mm. I was like, great, Peter. Like <laughs>
3: let's, yeah. let's
2: look at countries without a strong FDA, like China where they inject silicone into shrimp that causes cancer or Africa yeah. with plastic rice. Like right. really, that's a winning idea, Peter.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but you know, he, he, uh, he and I were talking about uh, you know, how do you fix things? And he, you know, he kept on saying this thing that came from Barry Goldwater, right? Which is that the government is like a camel and that you know, once it gets its nose under the tent, you can't stop it. It just goes all the way under. And I'm like, that's, you know, I spent time in the Middle East, like that's, that's <laughs> I've that. actually been with camels. I, I've been with camels. <laughs> and like I had this conversation because I remembered that there was this line in the Quran where, or in the Hadith where it says, which is the sayings of the Prophet, and it says, you know, some guy asked Muhammad, "Should I trust in Allah or should I tie up my own camel?" and the and Muhammad says you should both you should tie up your own camel and trust in Allah." And the point is is that Peter Schiff wants to shoot the camel because like the camel just becomes too pain in the ass, but then you have no camel. So I think yeah. the point is is that it, the, the the government has gotten crazy, Corporations have gotten crazy, but you know that's because we've been
1: asleep. We haven't tied up our own camels. But it's not because we've been asleep. It's the nature of corporations to grow and to accrue capital and power. That's right. And, um, and, and to oppose anything that obstructs that growth. That's right. Which government did for a while. And that yeah. was the balance. And I think what happened is there was that struggle between government and corporate power. Mm-hmm. And in America, corporate power won. That's right. And it's over. It's done. I
2: don't think it's over. I think that the, and you know, and I can have this conversation with, I have this conversation with Peter Schiff, right? He's going to tell me that the problem is government, that it's the nature of government to grow and to bloat and that government has won and it's
1: strangling corporations
2: so yeah i mean strangling
1: corporations but that's, that's
2: the narratives there are all these competing narratives tell
1: it to you know the head of exxon who's now the secretary 100%. of state oh he's being strangled that poor guy
2: and it is it is yeah. it's that iron triangle of corruption where yeah. it's really it's a full it's, the, it's all system. the same thing that's yeah. right
1: That's why I say, like, you know, the system's dysfunctional. So, like, we're not going to fix it by sending Bernie Sanders to the White House, or Donald Trump. For that matter, what
2: you what you need is you need a real people's movement, and these do happen in history. I mean, this is what the progressive movement was about with Teddy Roosevelt um, and Howard Taft, and I think I've been reading Doris Kearns Goodwin, The Bully Pulpit which is all about how Teddy Roosevelt knew that he needed to engage people. That was the challenge. You needed to get the people fired up. Mm. So they really emotionally understood these things and wanted to do something about them. And so he just let everybody know that without fear or favor, he was going to enforce all the laws. And so he went and he started busting up corruption left, right, and center. Right. And, you know, it takes time. But over time, the public gets it and the public gets engaged. And I think... That's what we need. We need to get the people fired up, give people the understanding so you can then go and tie up all the camels.
1: But Lessig had, I agree with Lessig that the first step has to be campaign finance reform. Otherwise, no one like Roosevelt will be allowed to do anything. That's right. Yeah.
2: And so I think the the point is is that, but you know, there there are so many great people out there. You know, there's you, there's Lessig, there's Joe Rogan, there's David Sloan Wilson, <laughs> there's Joe Henry. me? That's yeah. Great. <laughs> well, thank you. No, yeah, I'm, I'm serious. That's so nice to You're be way, listed among the great... Well, I mean, listen. I've, I, I, you know, I, I've looked at the other Chris
1: Ryans, and you are oh, undoubtedly the, the number one I am Chris one Ryan. One of the top three Chris Ryans in, <laughs> in your, the world. in your contact. No, in book. the world, in I the think. World. I don't wow, because you got the Google alert. There are you a know lot. about
2: all the other Chris Ryans well, out there, and most of them. But are some of them criminals. just aren't
1: mentioned. You know, <laughs> <laughs> some of them are doing good work quietly without seeking all this attention yeah. with the podcasting. <laughs> yeah uh,
2: can we have a chris ryan day where we just draw attention to underappreciated Under- chris ryan
1: <laughs> those the chris ryan's in the shadows working in the shadows there's a book i don't remember what it's called but it, it sort of came out of this idea this guy uh what was it he, he was he read a, a newspaper article about a guy who had been in prison for mm-hmm. 30 years or something and and he had the same name mm-hmm. as him. And this guy had gone to Harvard or Princeton mm-hmm. or something. And he thought like, wow, that could have been me. Yeah. You know. And then he went and interviewed the guy and he ended up writing a book about the two mm-hmm. Charles Johnsons or whatever his yeah, name yeah. was, you know. Um, yeah. And there was also a This American Life, I remember, an episode where they, they went and interviewed like, you know, 15 people who all had the same name. Mm-hmm. And they, their lives were so interesting and different. Yep. And, just sort of a random thing. Well, and there are those
2: there are those weird convergences where people who are called dentists are more likely to become dentists, and people who are more likely <laughs> really to, yeah. So they they found that like or you know Dennis and Denise are more likely to become dentists. Larry, and Laura are more likely to become lawyers. There is a certain you know people have these names and then they start to be like yeah that's me. And there's a certain affinity. I mean you know who knows it's maybe one of these psych studies that never actually checks out. But yeah that it you know like the one that you gave the classic one about you know this you go up to the students. Uh, and solicit them for sex and then you know oh. the men and the women and all that right you know, yeah,
1: yeah. right yeah um, yeah in Florida they did yeah. that study yeah so
2: you never and that's I think that's part of the point is is that there's there's so little reconfirming of these studies or testing of these studies to make sure that they have repeatability. Um, so do you hunt? Uh, I am a hunter Are like, you? I, not for not for flesh but I
1: what do you hunt
2: I, I you know it's interesting so uh you know, I when I went to Egypt with my family, right, there is this goddess Maat, uh-huh.
1: um,
2: who is the goddess of truth, justice, and universal order. And
1: also has two A's right next to each other. Exactly. Yeah. And
2: so uh, I've always felt that that was my name, mm. is, you know, that I'm a hunter for truth, justice, and universal order. Uh, um,
1: wow. Universal order sounds dangerous. I'm it does. I'm down with the other two, but the universal order scares me.
2: Yeah. Well I think but I think to go back to the whole Cesar Hidalgo thing is is that, you know, true order, right? So the best possible order is a tension between order and chaos. Mm. That's what the free market is about. The market is, you know, if you look at a great marketplace anywhere in Cambodia and you know, wherever Djibouti,
1: you know <laughs> Two interesting examples. <laughs> two interesting just pulled examples. from your Djibouti.
2: <laughs> yeah, Djibouti, exactly. Right. <laughs> um Waggadoo. Um uh but if you look at a great market, you know, there's, it's, not, it's not ordered in the sense of being suppressed. It's a bustle of activity. It's like a beehive. Right. But there is a certain level of organization in the beehive. And it's mm. that creative tension between order and chaos yeah. that is where the best comes out of.
1: Do you think chaos actually exists or is it just a level of order we're not capable of understanding?
2: Could be. Could be. I mean... Um, I think that's, I think it's so much of this comes down to like, if you think about a beehive and it, you know, it's, there's definitely an order to the system, Yeah. but, and yeah, I mean, it may just be that there's a level of order that we don't understand. Like if you take the, you know, the, whatever, right, it wouldn't even be the 10,000 foot view, but if you were able to step out and really just sort of watch the universe play out, um, yeah I think and I think that's part of what's happening as well in the science. Is there a realization that there is a level of order that there has been some sort of directionality in all of this that we haven't maybe understood because we were so lost in the process
1: yeah, yeah, we're embedded yep. It's very difficult to see what you're embedded within, and that gets yep. into the detribalization thing. Well, listen, we could do this forever, but I gotta run, I've got, and I also have to piss. Oh, that
2: sounds I, good. I, and just I don't do them at the same that's time. A, yeah, because it's then it becomes messy. a little sprinkler it's thing. It's very
1: messy. <laughs> you got to run backwards. <laughs> Alright, thanks for doing this Uh, What's The the Brian Callen Podcast The Brian Callen Show Uh uh,
2: Where the sort of the way of thinking that we're evolving Is mixed mental arts
1: But I don't know, aren't you like You're you're becoming the He's the Tversky and you're the You gotta get your name in there somewhere Well,
2: the joke we always make is It's the Brian Callen Show With (laughs) Undermond (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, I mean, inevitably, like, since ego is a thing that inevitably creeps in, we've uh, just decided to make a joke of it. Uh, and just sort of really, because so much of Brian's comedy is about sort of, you know, his delusions of grandeur. Hmm. So we just play up those delusions of grandeur. Uh, and, uh, so you're you know, going to
1: let him have this one. That's right. Yeah. You just
2: let him have it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to, you know, just be there and just be facilitating the process.
1: You're like the, the Ed McMahon. <laughs>
2: exactly.
1: Are you old enough to remember Ed McMahon?
2: I'm not old enough to remember him live, but who Uh, doesn't
1: know Ed McMahon? Oh, okay, good. How hot is it, Johnny? (laughs) (laughs) And he was always shit faced. That's what I loved about Ed. He'd like show up. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I mean, you've seen the Gary Shanley show?
0: Oh, yeah. which that's amazing. so So good. good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hey, yo. (laughs) Oh fuck! yeah (laughs) all right uh so we we covered your podcast and mixed mental arts and then the the book i co-wrote is called the straight a conspiracy right so what's the mixed martial arts thing is that a podcast as well or that's just the the, the dojo i mean we
2: i mean being in the world of mma mixed martial arts yeah um you know we increase mental arts yeah. yeah it's it all ends up being the same thing but You know, we were increasingly, we'd interviewed over 200 scientists and we're like, this is so cool. There's so many great ideas here, but it will literally never add up to anything. Right. And so, you know, just in this, just stealing the analogy, right. It's like, okay, great. There's boxing, there's jujitsu, there's all these other things. But why not combine them together to evolve something better than any one of them is individually? So is that a separate podcast? No, it's what the podcast is developing. And we we'll probably will end up changing the name from The Brian Callen Show much to Brian's chagrin. Right. Because everybody gets confused in the same way that you are. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but, so, the, but what we actually we want to do is we really want... We think that the form of intellectual discourse that happens in academia is actually bad for intellectual progress because it's right. so stuffy and serious and there are all these papers that nobody reads. And it's all appeals to authority. That's and right. Bullshit. yeah. And so what we want yeah. is we really want to do what MMA has done for fighting. Oh. We want to do for thinking. Take the gloves off. Take the gloves off. No holds barred. Right. And have teasing and have, you know, mm. all that playful banter and really that it's just everybody is like, Because think about how much faster we've... Imagine if we tried to play out this conversation through papers.
1: Yeah. Right? Like, it would be so slow. I'd really have to piss. (laughs) Did you ever get Steven Pinker on?
2: Uh, No. What's your take on Pinker? Because I thought what you said in in Sex at Dawn was interesting about him.
1: I am not a fan. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm sure... uh, You know, I defer to his his linguistic work. I don't know anything about that. And, you know, uh, and he's obviously very smart. But what I've seen in his evolutionary psychology writing has struck me as somewhere between sloppy and intentionally dishonest. Mm -hmm. So... I may be wrong, and and I've never met him in person. I've heard yeah. he's a nice guy. I, I, I have friends who know him, and so I, I'm, has you know, I feel bad saying that, but he's done stuff with his, you know, the the sort of his representation of hunter gatherer violence, which mm-hmm. is fundamental to his whole thesis that things are getting better all the yeah. time, and it's the most peaceful moment in human history, and all that. Um, that's just absurd. It's mm-hmm. it's horrible. I mean. The, I don't know if you're familiar with the the details of this whole controversy, but um, some of the data he uses, for example, uh, establishing baseline hunter gatherer violence and and murder levels uh, or or death in war Mm -hmm. and includes or it it only is based on hunter gatherers who were killed by Brazilian uh, loggers Mm -hmm. and soldiers and then he goes and, and uses those numbers to say, see, hunter-gatherers are yeah, violent yeah, yeah. and they die in warfare. They were killed by fucking loggers right. coming into their land. They weren't killing each other, man, right. you know. Stuff like that or, um, yeah, I don't know, I talk about it in Sex of Dawn. There's a section of yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Professor Pinker read in Tooth and Claw. where I think yeah. he just really egregiously misrepresents the, you know, the sort of state of hunter-gatherer violence.
2: Well, and that's the basic problem is I think that in terms of checking power, we need to evolve towards a system where, you know, people, because the problem is, is it becomes about like, oh, Steven Pinker, he's so famous. And what you find is it's the same thing with Richard Dawkins. Like, does Richard Dawkins know genetic evolution? Does he know all that material hardcore? 100%. But in general, then he becomes an authority on everything. And now he's talking about spirituality and human psychology and all these things where he doesn't necessarily know what he's talking about. The the public isn't discerning enough to know, oh, I should listen to this guy on this topic and not listen to him on this other topic. Like nobody is trying to pretend that, you know, oh, man, this cardiologist, he's so good at cardiology. That's why I'm going to go to him for my back pain. (laughs)
1: Right well dr ben uh, carson (laughs) yeah exactly
2: or exactly right like you're good at you know brain surgery that's awesome that's a valuable skill to have in a society does not mean that you therefore can fix everything
1: yeah or donald
2: trump like you know okay great you know how to run a certain kind of real estate empire yeah that is not the same thing as running a country
1: It's true. You know, maybe this is a fundamental flaw in human thinking, right? That, like, because someone's good at something, they're therefore good at everything.
2: I think it's a fundamental flaw in American thinking and Western
1: thinking. Mm. Um,
2: And it is that fundamental attribution error, again where, you know, America constantly creates the sort of the great man right. who is capable of doing anything. right? But, you know, if you look at, I mean, why has, you know, people, when people talk about why is, you know, Asian manufacturing so successful, they usually talk about work ethic or you mm. know, they work harder or whatever it may be, where they're willing to work for lower wages. But in fact, I think a large part of it is culture. If you look at the Toyota production system, it is holistic. Mm. So Henry Ford develops the manufacturing pl- plant figures out oh let's break everything down into its component parts but it's then perfected by the Japanese because they understand that those parts need to be harmonized. Mm. And crucially, they understand that everybody has different knowledge. Mm -hmm. So the CEO doesn't say, this is how everything is going to be done. Instead, he goes down onto the factory floor, he talks to the guy who puts the wheel on the car and understands, oh, you're the expert in this thing. Let's get your local knowledge and use that local knowledge to improve this part of the plan. Mm. And if you ran an entire society on that model where we understand listen, you may be the president of the United States, and that is precisely why you don't, for example, know the challenges of teaching you know, algebra in Compton. And it's why you don't know what is needed to make uh, you know, nursing stations work more effectively in hospitals in Montana, right, which is super rural or whatever, and has a very specific set of challenges there. So if you ran an entire society based on the, the idea that the wisdom of crowds relies on a crowd right and that individuals just aren't smart enough to be able to handle all that data you get very different outcomes but it's bad for the people that we make heroes because we set them up for unrealistic expectations it's bad for the crowd because the crowd feels disempowered and gets pissed off and um it's bad for the sort of emergent solution because you're not taking advantage of what everybody knows
1: yeah yeah, it's a misunderstanding of of hierarchy too. Yep, and there's all these all this confusion when Western people first meet hunter gatherer people and say, you know, okay, take us to your leader. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? Yeah, what leader? Like yeah. this this guy's really good at knowing when to you know go hunting, and right. this guy's great if we get into a war, and this yep. this woman really knows about healing like what are you talking about a leader yeah
2: and that's the toyota production system yeah and it's understanding that we all just have different functions in society but it would be ridiculous imagine if i came into this podcast and why don't
1: you and i get together and write a book about uh business done let's cash out we would cash out man (laughs) buy a fucking island be hanging with richard branson exactly (laughs) i want to learn to kite (laughs) surf
2: what the Done, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Hey, okay, thanks. Awesome. Hunter. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page, chrisryanphd.com. You click on that baby once, bookmark the landing page on Amazon, and then 8 to 10% of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones. Thank you to Basin and Range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast. Very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, Thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them, everything we've got in stock It's from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand and you can check out their webpage as well for other designs thank you to Carsey Blanton you can find out more about Carsey Blanton at carseyblanton.com c-a-r-s-i-e-b-l-a-n-t-o-n dot com she wrote and performed the song you're about to hear which is called Smoke Alarm and it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because ladies and gentlemen you're gonna die one day here's to you bennett
3: he said baby what's a big deal feel what you wanna feel say what you wanna say you're gonna die one day for example i could kiss you just because i want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. (laughs) When everyone we've ever known is headed.